Bitcoin fixes the money, the Beef Initiative fixes the food and nutrition. Step into some new awareness that incorporates some much needed food intelligence into your life. This is Texas Slim with Texas Slim's vision. Today we have a waist slice of beefsteak. Many of you have heard him. Uh, this is a two-part series. We had some technical difficulties. We came back a couple of days later. I think you'll enjoy the rip. Here we have we have Josh. We have a waist slice. How are you doing today, man? Good to see I'm you. I'm doing all. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? We're doing good. We're uh, nice and warm here in Texas. It's a beautiful winter day. We have not suffered winter whatsoever. Well, a little bit. We've had some snow and some stuff, but we're definitely in a drought. How's it up in the Northeast? Cold. Yeah. Cold. It's been it's been brutal. Actually, that's not true. Last week it was kind of warm, kind of warmed up. It was really molded, really muddy. The last couple of days it's been like makes you want to leave. Makes me want to leave. Yeah, Hard. I saw somebody commenting about that. I said, when are you going to get to Texas? And you had a comment that you're going to stay up in the Northeast. Well, yeah, because then we can get ranch waters up here now. So, well, that's good. What part of New York would you do that in? Um, I'm in. I'm in. I live in Brooklyn. And I'm, I, we live in the city. Do you? Um, yeah. 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 I've been here for a while, but I'm, I'm from, I'm from Missouri originally. So it's a long ways from home. It is. Um, what part of Missouri? Jefferson city. Right. Which is like right smack in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and we were, I say we were beef farmers. We had a beef farm. We raised cattle, but we didn't, we weren't in like the business. We kind of more, were more of like a hang it in the barn, give it to neighbors sort of farm. Sure. Was that your grandparents all the way back? How, how many generations was that that you guys did that? You know, that's a good question. I don't know beyond my grandpa. I imagine mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a family line that's lost there on that side of the family. Um, so actually I just don't know the answer to that question. And I can't, I can't believe I've never asked my mom about it before. I got to get in there and do some research. About the well, that's what I, yeah. That's what I've been doing. I've been telling people, Hey, let's look over our shoulder and let's see how we, our grandparents used to eat and how they, you know, looked at food and, and how to source that food and how that food was raised and where it actually came from. If it wasn't through, you know, a hook in your barn. So yeah, um, that's pretty cool. It's, it's good to reflect back in there to just see, you know, how the industry was as far as beef and, you know, as far as you and I talking today, you know, you do the beef steak, you do beef steak. So yeah, Let's let people that don't know anything about that. Why don't you give your your uh, spill of it and where you got the idea? It comes from New York, I believe. So fill us in. Yeah. So the quick background for me, I'm a like I'm a chef, mm -hmm. and I work in New York City. I have always been into reading like food history, and and I was just reading this collection of historic food articles from the New Yorker. And, uh, and I just came across this article called all you can hold for five bucks. And it is basically this story of this guy going to all the beefsteaks in 1939 and everyone talking 
about how great they used to be back in the day. Um, and they talk about all the chefs and people are all dressed up and how they used to not allow women and how it changed over time and all the men were complaining that women are allowed down. There's fruit cups and crab cakes and it used to just be steak and beer and you'd eat it with your hands. Um, and I read that article and it just like, uh, it just clicked. It just clicked. I was like, I want to go to a beefsteak. And so I started just Googling and there are beefsteaks. There's one in Chicago. At the time there was one in Brooklyn. Um, and then people will just have them they do them in New Jersey right across the river from Manhattan as fundraisers a lot. Like it's a big thing for fire departments over there. Everybody does them a little bit differently. So I went to some different ones and I didn't, none of them quite hit that. I wanted it. I wanted them to be what that article described them as having been right. Um, where it was really just steak on the table and beer in your cup. And, uh, so I started just trying to throw them and, uh, and they caught on. And just like that article clicked with me, I feel like when people hear about that description of what a beefsteak is, you know, all you can consume steak and beer with no utensils or napkins. That's sort of the elevator pitch. Either it clicks with people or it doesn't click with people. And you can see it right away. Like some people kind of grimace, you know, they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> But some people are like, that sounds amazing, and I want to go to the next one you do. Um, so it just caught on with Bitcoiners. Um, I need a more refined version and tell the story. But I basically, you know, like I went to one of my first like Bitcoin outings was with Pierre Rochard, and he was doing a steak dinner. And, um, you know, I had kind of lurked in the the Twitter shadows for a long time and not really like pinged anybody or tried to go to a meetup or anything like that. And so I had no street cred as a Bitcoiner and I reached out to Pierre and I was like, I want to come to the steak dinner you're doing. And so, uh, he was like, he just was just said, okay, <laughs> and let, let me in without kind of any like hardcore vetting on his part. Um, and you know, to his credit, like I, that changed my life. Like I, made a bunch of friends that night that I'm still friends with. And it put me on the path to going to more meetups and Bitcoin events and then hosting Bitcoin events. Um, and I think it's a big, I think it's an important part of the Bitcoin community, being able to get together and talk about things and argue about things, but also just be with Bitcoin Bitcoiners and talk about anything but Bitcoin. Um, Cause we have a lot of middle ground on other stuff as well, like food, for instance. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and what better, uh, what, what better food than pure animal protein and beef? So, you know, <laughs> you know yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a no brainer to me, of course. Yeah. That's a, that's a big part of it too. Right. Like I, the, I guess that was the next step of the Pierre story that I didn't really get to, which is that when I, when I was there at that dinner, I was like, Pierre, I've been working on these things called beef steaks. Like, should could, should we just do a Bitcoin beef steak? And just without knowing me or anything, he was like, "Yeah, let's just pick a date." And we did it in my backyard. We had a couple people over. He he helped me set up all the the pay server and do payments and stuff like that. And and it was fun. You know, it was really simple and lowbrow, but it was just a bunch of steak and coolers full of beer and Bitcoiners hanging out chatting. Um, 
and it was the sort of thing that you know it's like the, it kind of like sells itself like like i was saying like people are either into it or not and then if they're into it they value it sure um, and and it, it kind of goes down that road um, well, it definitely follows the Bitcoin ethos in so many different ways. You know, it's very intentional. Uh, it's not random. It's low time preference. There's so many things you can pick from it. And, you know, just just being a consumer of beef and the carnivore and whatever, as far as animal protein, that's the whole lifestyle. So you're yeah. talking to, you're talking to a lifestyle. So people are they're going to respond and say, hell, yeah, I'm going to do that. Where's the apron? And then you're going to say, well, I, I don't want to get messy. Or whatever. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah, want to yeah. gorge on all that protein. Sorry, it's going to make me feel weird. Or you know, they, they wouldn't even know how to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We got to get you to one, man. Yeah, definitely. I missed you. That's what happened the first time you and I came across. Marty told me, he said, hey, you need to get to this. And it was just, the, it was two days that we just couldn't make it happen. And you had that one down in yeah. Austin. And, um, you know, we got to get you to one of our conferences. I got to get out to a beefsteak. And, you know, that's just one of the reasons we're talking because we're trying to educate people on, you know, you and I were talking about before we're bridging, you know, a lot of gaps with a lot of different types of dimensions of people. Um, you brought up a good point. We're always saying they, you know, who is they? Well, maybe there's not a lot of they out there. Maybe we're all basically focusing on the wrong um, information and noise. And really everybody's just wanting to get along and go to a beefsteak or go to a conference or learn how to source better protein. And we should probably, you know, you and I, or, you know, that's our intentions is to bridge those gaps. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about it. So I was kind of doing before chatting with you today, I was kind of doing some homework by listening to your, your podcast with Marty and, uh, just puts my brain down several different roads. You know, I, I ranching, like raising cows, it, it's so hard. It made me think of a couple of things. The first thing it made me think of is talking like when Cole was talking, I was, it made me something that I've never done is kill a cow, mm -hmm. um, which is some, sometimes that bothers me because I feel like, uh, part of my road to being a chef was, I'm going to give you the super abridged version. You know, like we grew up in Missouri as a kid. Um, you know, we visited the beef farm all the time. And then, you know, once or twice a year, a truck would show up and it would get filled up with beef. You know, if we, my freezer would get filled up with beef. And then, and I knew that that beef was from the farm, but like as a kid growing up, like I don't always like, you know, attach a and b you know like i wasn't thinking about the link there um and then when i was 14 we my family moved to atlanta and we started getting our beef from the grocery store right and, and it, it, it's noticeably different i don't know if i i thought about it at the time but then the other thing that happened was you know i was like an impressionable kid from the country moving to a big city and there are these PETA kids like handing out you know, Texas, not Texas, but they're handing out like factory farm brochures. You're like saying this is like, this is the treatment that cows are going through, you know? And like, as a kid from Missouri, I'm like, that's not what cows are going through. Um, but then you like look into it and, and you find out it is, it is what a lot of cows go through. Um, and it's a terrible process. And, and 
like Cole was saying, like you raise a cow, like I was around the cows that we were eating. It's hard to put a cow down, right? Um, but at the same time, if you're going to raise a cow to be eaten, there's a lot of respect that goes into preparing the cows that you're raising, right? Um, and you want to you wanna do it justice. Um, and I think that's important. And I, that's something that I would love to do sometime is kill the cow. I, I, to say I would love to do it is not the right thing. It's something I feel like I should participate in if I'm going to be the guy that cooks beef for everybody. Right. Uh Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Like, are you a hunter? Are you sure? Well, I've, I grew up hunting, of course, um, where I grew up, there was, you know, we're close to the mountains of New Mexico, the Southern Rockies. So you have a lot of mule deer, you have black bear, you have elk. Uh, we have deer here in the Texas panhandle. We had pheasant, dove, all that kind of stuff. So you grow up hunting. I haven't, I haven't had a kill in, in, in a while, but I've definitely killed several animals. Um, always was used for, uh, protein and everything. Um, as far as, downing a, an animal like a, a seer cow bull whatever that's something that i think a lot of people should go through because it is part of understanding how to steward the animal and how to steward the food and it's hard for a nation to be able to do that but to be, better understand the process as cole brought up in the podcast with Marty, you know, you take ownership of the care of that animal. There is a stewardship that takes place and you know, the intention of that is to keep you alive. It's to give that animal peace as it's here, give it strength because it's strength becomes your strength. There's so much into our food history and the, the heritage of food and how other generations uh, before us thought about food. Right now, we look at food as entertainment, as a marketing plan, and nothing more because people really don't even investigate the nutritional value that is basically, you know, put on these labels. And if you know anything about food intelligence, that most labels are bullshit basically and you know we've got the proof everybody knows that you know people that are in the food industry know it it's just kind of a a, that's unspoken if you go through the process of harvesting an animal yourself or knowing exactly how it's done on a local smaller micro processing level you'll have a total different perspective of it and especially somebody that you do you know how to quarter or in butcher or were you just on what level of chef did you take that skill set to yeah so i i do yes i can butcher i can i've done a fair amount of butchering in my time sure um right like you if you're gonna if someone's gonna roll over an entire uh steer carcass you really need some special tools to get mm-hmm. to get it apart but but you know if somebody puts a hundred pound pig in front of me i can break it down into cuts and bone it out and stuff like that i haven't I, I can do all that stuff and that's the thing i'm not i i've handled plenty of carcasses i just haven't taken any sure. of their lives from them you know mm-hmm. um and it, and there's something about it that's like other people doing my dirty work a little bit if i'm gonna do that stuff but even even butchering i, I something about it just 
it's like you talk about filling in gaps, you know, and I was saying the like moving from Missouri where a neighbor was putting beef in our freezer to Atlanta where some kid is handing me a PETA pamphlet that shows cows being mistreated. Um, there was an information gap that was existing for me when I was a kid in Missouri that was like the process of the cow getting killed and cut up and put in my freezer, right? Like I saw the cows living a good life in the field and I saw the beef on my plate and I liked eating it, but I, the in-between was just lost on me. Um, and, and then the outside world that was happening around it was also lost on me. And, and it just, it just gave me a big res respect for the life of the animal. Actually, when I learned the, in, the rest of that story is that when I went through that transition in high school and I saw, and I looked into factory farming, and learned about it my first my initial reaction was to not eat meat so i ended up i became a vegan for four or five years um and that was actually what started me cooking because my mom was like look you can be a vegan but i'm not cooking for you all the time so you need to start cooking for yourself and so at the time i was like i was a kid working at a pizza place as a server that was my summer kind of after school job. And I, they like bumped me to a cook because they needed help in the kitchen and all that stuff kind of happening in tandem, me becoming a pizza cook, my mom making me cook for myself, got me really into cooking. Um, and then I kind of did like the, the pendulum swing of going into full meat eating and, and eating everything. Um, and that's the other thing about killing an animal is like, you really can't, one of the big gaps that's missing in this whole food conversation, in my opinion, is just how to cook, you know, like uh -huh. somebody's going to bring you a cow to your, to your freezer. Like it can't be a surprise that a cow is not made of ribeyes, right? Like it's great to get a ribeye and everybody can cook a ribeye in a cast iron skillet. It's like, what do you do with top round? What do you do with Chuck? If it's not ground, you know, what can I do with these bones? It, it's just, you need to know how to turn that stuff into delicious food because that's what makes, you know, supplying our bodies with nutrients an enjoyable experience. Right. Um, no, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's something, it's an orchestration that takes place based on, um, you know, history of having to prepare food, but anyways, it's, it's a conversation that the family has, and it's not just an instant gratification fix. It's a, you know, it's a very low time preference approach. If you know, if you've got a side of beef in your, your freezer, you're planning out your meals, you're, you're intentionally thinking about putting them together as far as the nutrients preparation, um, the, the varieties of different ways to cook different types of cuts of beef that you don't get in basically the grocery store. Like you said, you have, you know, you have your ribeyes, you have your T-bones, you have your New York strips, you have your tenderloin. And so a lot of people have no idea the variety of options that you can have and how that becomes more of a intentional lifestyle than you think about going into it. 
whenever we as a nation things that you know going through a drive-through or, or getting uber eats to deliver something for you and that's that's called food consumption on a on a educated level it's just not it, it's taking all of that middle ground out of the whole process of obtaining that pure animal protein and you know i see it within the beef initiative um the the lack of understanding and that's part of what we're doing in the beef initiatives. We're having a section that's called mind your protein. We're encouraging chefs, uh, people that have had cooking show, anybody that wants to come into that section, you can contribute and you can give your education. You can give your intelligence, your recipes, you know, what to, what to do whenever you do have a half of side of beef and how you prepare your meals. So that's, that's something that I'm trying to tackle within that platform itself that people can share and we can crowdsource and kind of begin a new, you know, awareness on exactly everything you just said. Yeah. That's a, that's a beast. That's a beast to take down that whole process of mm-hmm. creating that content. And it really is presenting it in a way that serves people. Are you much of a cook? I, you know, I, when I was younger, I worked in bars and restaurants. I used to work with some chefs uh, as far as being a, a seasoned cook. No, I grew up learning how to cook from the farm and with the grill and that's pretty much i'm a i'm a good cook but i'm nothing like uh on your your level or anything like that um been around it and very informed i just haven't made it into an over you know focused hobby or a type of career yeah yeah and i it's it's a it's like a mixed bag too right because it's like do you and this just applies to everything do i think everyone should be a chef or do I think people should at least cook enough to respect what chefs do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's part of that goes back to kind of why I think that I should kill a cow sometime because I do I want to kill cows for a living? Absolutely not. Um, but if somebody's gonna have to kill cows all the time so that I can always eat beef, then I think it's good for me to understand what it takes to do that, right? Um, Well, I I agree with you 100%. I mean, you bring that up. I guess it was, yeah, it was last week. um, I was at a harvest. I saw uh, a a very good size bull that went down. I saw the whole, you know, I've seen it many times, but, you know, I was right there with the bull as he went down. And, you know, comparing to, you know, the factory farms and stuff like that, there is no comparison. You know, there is no stress. There is, it, it happens. It's, it's at peace very fast. And there's, there's something about it that it, some people, it might bother some people. It might be shocking, but I think that with anything, it's life and death. And it's how we've evolved into where we are. It is the origins of who we are is, 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 is as far as a species, we do eat animals. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. we, do, we got here eating animals. And the more that you understand how we got here, let's say the Native Americans here in the Texas Panhandles, you know, as the Comanches, they were wonderful horsemen and they lived off the buffalo. You know, this is the great high plains that, the, you know, the, the grasslands of the United States. And so there's a lot of history that I grew up with and all the honoring and the, the, the sacred and the worshiping of the bison. And there's nothing wrong with doing that to the animal that gives you life. 
And if you put that stewardship and that education and that intentional thinking and, you know, that form of respect into your life and into your food, guess what? You're going to live better. You're going to have a better, stronger spirit to you for one, because you're honoring something that's bigger than you are. And so there's so many ways you can look at that. And, you know, you should be proud that you would be able and you want to down an animal so you can give it respect and you can process it in the correct way. And you can deliver that protein to somebody that respects the same as you. And, you know, raising our kids to believe that way is is a way to superpower that a lot of people are not leveraging right now. And if you do not think that you need to start with your food as the first thing that you're thinking about anymore, then you're a little bit behind. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to do is provide that education. It's like, hey, we need to point our compass over here a little bit. We've kind of got off track. Yeah. Yeah. It's a form of appreciation, right? Just kind of thinking about it and approaching it in that sense. And also, I think about when you're talking, when you're saying those things, I think about like you waste, like when you kill an animal, Mm-hmm. Again, I haven't killed a big animal, but when you when you butcher an animal, for sure, you're you're less inclined to waste it, right? Like all those parts you're taking apart, you're you're so aware of that strip of fat you drop into the trash can. You know, like yeah. I don't. Right. If you can, like when you, then when you get to the point where you're like, like my buddy in North Carolina raised some Magnolista pigs last year, and. Uh, I ended up getting a half of one and it it is so good. It's just, it's some of the best pork that I've ever had. And that, you know, we just, I had to like decide whether or not to have all of the fat shipped to me, but I just like couldn't bear to have them throw all the fat away. So I just (laughs) put the bill to have them, you know, ship me 60 pounds of just pork fat. And I, you know, I've been rendering it and cooking with it. It's, it's it's really delicious. It's good, really good stuff. Um, What's next on the, yeah, yeah, well, go ahead. Well, I was going to say back to the the lard of the the hog and everything. I've got a buddy out in Tennessee, and he just opened up a, a skincare product, and it's called Faro F A R R dot O W dot Live. But what he's doing, he's doing skincare products out of hog lard. So that's fat. pretty awesome. It is. It's really cool. I, you know, everybody should go check him out. Um, it's a good product. But going back into harvesting the animal and all the waste products that do, do go mm-hmm. into that. I was talking to my local producer the other day, and this is part of the hyper-localization of our communities that I want to kind of bring into the value for value exchange as far as using a local processor, producer, and supplier is that, hey, his name's Justin. I've had him on several podcasts. He's like, what are you doing with your hides? I want your hides. So I'm going to start getting his hides and I'm going to start getting his suet as well. So I can start making what my idea for my community that I'm in, it's kind of a summer tourist town for, we have a place called Paladoro. It's a, it's a good destination spot for people. So it's a small town tourism thing. Well, I want to do soaps and candles out of the suet. I want to do the raw hides, you know, and basically create a small little business based on the, byproduct of his steers that he's putting down his cows and so we're in talks to say hey how can we create this little small business that will help the local community and then you know we create another revenue stream for that cow this is what we need to start looking at as you know people across 
the United States, especially that want to decentralize your food. This has something to say with decentralizing your food and how you process it, how you leverage it and how you turn it back into the community. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I, I thought about that when I was thinking about that thing about the beef, my family beef farm this morning is the hides are something we just never saw. I have no idea what happened to all our right. <laughs> families cow hides. I, I'm sure they just tossed it, you know, cause it's a whole, it's like a whole nother job to oh, tan yeah, hides. Those, you know, those, like, those hides, they, they're, they're a lot of work. Um, a lot of people don't like, like to touch them because it is labor intensive. Um, yeah. The way I look at that is there's a younger generation of men out there that are very hungry not to go to school and they want to know yeah. these, these old type of uh, heritage type of jobs and skill sets. So I'm, I'm leveraging my, my local community and I'm going to get some guys saying, Hey, you want to learn a little bit about taxidermy? You want to learn how to start a business perhaps let's, let's get you working. And at one of the one of the kids I'm talking to, he's 17. He's working at the Justin's place as far as local producer. And then I'm going to talk to him about, you know, let's get you another skill set and let's turn it back into the economy. There's a lot of ways we can be creative right now. And, you know, that's what the Beef Initiative is about, is to start having that that conversation with the community, with the ranchers, with the Bitcoiners and saying, let's let's all start doing this. Let's build these nodes you know, we talk about nodes and decentralization and how we got to move forward. And it's just not about consumption of, of animal protein. It's about everything there is to do with the, with the leverage of that, that animal. Yeah. And so as you're saying that stuff, like the things that I'm thinking about in my mind, like, do you, do you imagine more that each node that you're describing would be able to execute all parts of the process? Or do you imagine that there would be groups of nodes that specialize in different parts of the process, such as one node raises the cattle, one node slaughters and butchers the cattle, and one node, you know, yeah. is the leather node or... <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, I think I think the nodes that we're kind of seeing form and we'll kind of follow Bitcoin and like the beef and the ranching, and the everything that I've been doing across the state of Texas. You know, we're getting the Dallas DFW node. We're getting the Austin node. We're getting the Houston node. You know, we're getting the big city nodes. But now what I'm seeing with the work I'm doing here in the Texas panel, where we have a processing node down in central Texas, we have another processing node. We're probably going to have one out in East Texas. What we're when you doing say processing is, node, what, what is that exactly? It's like a, is it like a meat processing plant? Is that what you're yeah, describing? Or? Yeah. We're, okay, we're awesome. going, yeah. We're, we're, this is, this is part of that. I haven't really talked much about the, the beef initiatives going into processing, but, the state of Texas is very good for processing and being able to have microprocessors all across the state. Um, my local processor, Justin, he's, he's doing about 30 cattle a week. That's his, his goal. We got coal down in central Texas. He's doing, he's going to target about 250 a week. Cole just laid his foundation, uh, his team of project managers and everybody facilitating that processing facility has 
proof of work. They have precedence that is USDA. So we know that that processing center has everything it needs to know as far as regulations, inspections, uh, USDA certifications, everything is taken care of. And so there's not going to be a lot of red tape here. And we're basically decreasing a lot of friction when it comes to the processing industry in the state of Texas. And so by doing that, we're going to, we're going to, Usurp the problem with processing. Let's just take a step back. USDA looks at a processing center like JBS or Cargill. That that processing center is doing two thousand cattle a day. Okay, well they're going to have different sanitation. They're going to have different wastewater restrict. You know all kinds of things. Whenever you go open up a processing center and you're like Justin, you're only doing thirty. Well, you, as Justin, the guy that's opened the processing center, you have to go out there and you have to research all of the rules, regulations to where those types of restrictions and regulations that JBS and Cargill have to uh, follow. You don't have to follow that, but you've got to figure out what, where's the loophole? Where's the workaround? Well, the team that I put together, we're pretty close to being precedents across one cow a week or 2,000 a day. We're going to be able to facilitate that um, facility as far as how to build it, how to project management and all that. So Yeah, that's a great. I mean, that's the amazing thing. Like if you can get one built and somebody feels good about open sourcing that information, yes, exactly. you can just keep building them. Well, and that's what happened with Justin. It was a fascinating story because he didn't pass his first inspection and him and his father have put years into this and, you know, they, they did a lot. They had to get loans. They used their own money, everything. So every little, you know, inspection, every little move bureaucratic that you have to go through with the government means something to a, a smaller guy. Well, they didn't pass their first inspection, and we won't talk about that, but he did pass his second inspection, and one of the head inspectors for the state of Texas came out and gave a speech, and he said, this is what we need in Texas. We need a lot more microprocessors all across the state. And so that's how we're tackling this is we're leveraging, you know, some politicians. We're uh, leveraging some of the legislation, the legal aspects of the laws that are in place. Guess what? We know how to do it now. We want the whole world to know how how it's done. And we want to have some, you know, people looking at it saying this is how we go up against this global food chain that's killing us. We're going to process our food locals locally in our communities again, like our grandparents did. Um, it's a big, big thing to go up against, but it's it's not threatening anybody. All it is is giving a different option to local communities where they can bring that revenue back in instead of all their cattle. Like, I, you know, a place here where I am, there's a place called Hereford, Texas. It's a processing town. And they, you know, all that processing that goes in there, none of that beef stays here. It most of yeah. 90% of it is shipped. Some of it's shipped overseas and we don't even get to have it in the state of Texas. Well, that's fine. You guys keep doing that. But us here in the 60 mile radius, we want to eat our local beef. So we're going to do yeah. it. And it, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It's, we're not going to change the world with it, but we're going to change intentional people just like you have coming to your, your beef steak. It's going to be that type of people. And we'll see who starts getting momentum and leverage and especially when we bring, you know, Bitcoin into the, the conversation. Yeah, I, you know, that's that's one thing that I've seen 
as kind of a strange positive side effect of inflation is it's it's pushing people to consider their local farms a lot more mm-hmm. um and 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 i credit that to you know like the, the last beefsteak i did in austin um this guy from i'm not going to name the name i don't know why but he, it's a family beef business. He let me come to his facility. It's a, it's a big facility. You know, they probably have 20 tons of beef in there and at any given time. And I was talking, we were talking about the rising prices, you know, and, and he was, you know, I was kind of throwing out little things that are the, the pure common sense things like the rise in the cost of feed and the rise in the cost of gas, which makes, the cost of feed go up and it makes the cost of beef go up and and it's a slippery slope and he was like he's like that's just the tip of the iceberg he started naming all these things and the thing that stuck with me was he he was like my inventory in this facility is worth three times what it used to be two years ago and what happens is because the value of my inventory keeps changing i have to keep changing my insurance policy and every change every time i change my insurance policy we have to hire an appraiser to come go through our inventory appraise it and then get a new insurance policy um, you know we used to do that every couple of years now we're doing it twice a year uh, and, and and he's like of course that just makes the beef more expensive, which makes the inventory more valuable, which it makes us have to call the appraiser back more. Um, he's like, but I don't know how to stop it. Um, and when I started doing beef steaks, like I could get prime ribeye for 13 or $14 a pound. And now it's $30 a pound. And that's on par with getting ribeye from a grass fed farmer around here, you know, like it used to be kind of crazy to consider paying $30 a pound for ribeye from a grass fed farmer. I could do it on a special occasion. Um, but if I was going to do a bigger event, it was really hard for me to make it happen price wise. But now those grass fed ribeyes cost the same as the USDA prime ribeyes from feedlots in the Midwest. Um, so, and I think consumers are seeing that trend too and definitely the farmers are seeing it when i talk to them about it they're just like they're they're trying to keep up with it and of course for the smaller farmers the problem with keeping up with it is the processing facilities like you're talking about which is a huge problem in new york yeah it is the it's the bottleneck you know and it's it's whatever we're not gonna bash the whatever the system it is what it is right let's let's innovate around it yeah and do it in a very legal and very educational way and that's fine we'll do that let's find yeah. out where we can and let's let's start in texas but that's one i kind of want to why i wanted to start in texas is because our laws are very favorable to that you know if we can set that yeah. standard that we're getting these regional processing centers going you know i said one one processing uh, center for every county. That's 254. That's pretty bold. Let's go. Let's go one processing count um, per ever three to four counties. That is totally um, doable. I believe it's already starting to take place behind the scenes. There's a lot of people coming into the processing um industry in the state of texas that do have money they realize that they do have leverage now to make this happen 
so we can get a kind of a good movement. It brings that education as far as farmers and ranchers saying, okay, I don't have to go to the big processing center. I've got this regional guy. I'm actually changing my whole protocol, how I'm raising this beef. Now I'm going to quit doing this grain finishes, this GMO stuff, you know, that, you know, I have to have a technology use agreement with, I'm going to go this regenerative way and I'm going to, I'm going to have control of my processing. So that's going to save me cost. Well, when I use this processor, I'm going to have different market access than I used to. So I'm going to be able to compete with these grocery stores now. And actually, my price is going down from what it is at, you know, the big supermarkets. You're seeing that. And these guys yeah. that have been in the industry, you know, and saying, I might change my protocol. I want to start raising my beef again the way my grandfather did. Let's start looking at how we can make that yeah. happen that's going to happen with availability to processing by processing. We start looking at market access and how it is controlled. And then we say, okay, we're going to innovate around the market access that is now and it's happening. And I think it's a perfect time for all of us to be having this conversation. Uh, I think it couldn't even be better because the inflation is a form of prohibition that's going on in this country. And a lot of people don't understand it. And it's a prohibition against pure animal protein right now because they're trying to really destroy it on a global level saying it's a you know a cow is a carbon hazard there's a lot of things that are at play that people don't understand and they 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 don't see see it coming there's there's been hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars invested in a new form of vegetable protein that is poisonous basically it's a fake commodity and they're coming with it and people are going to say well there'll always be beef yeah there'll be beef but it'll be the new caviar that's the intention of this and then people will settle for less than par nutrition when it comes to animal protein because they're making more money off a of fake protein than they can off the cow anymore and they are making a killing off the cow and the processors are the ones that are actually have control of that market yeah that's like a crazy thing so by saying that you it is. And by saying that, you know, you doing your beefsteak and, you know, you're doing how many you got. Let's let's talk about your schedule. That'll be a good thing to let's start talking about what you're about to come up on. I know Miami's coming. You said something about uh, out in California, maybe Wyoming. Yeah. Or yeah, they're, is it they're just Miami up. Some of them or? are more public. Some, some of them are more public than others. It's going to be one in San Diego creeping up. Um by mm-hmm. creeping up, I mean, it's, it's, it's this Saturday. Um, <laughs> and then there's going to be one in Wyoming that I can't talk about as much. It's a little bit, not private, but more targeted, I would say. Um, and then sure. Miami's creeping up around the corner. Um, possibly coming back to Austin in the summer. Minnesota. There you go. It's going all over. Um, it's been an, it's been in, an interesting process, you know, to kind of go through all the different, all the different beefsteaks present different problems. They're all planned remotely. You know, the main pitch is finding the place to do it. Um, cause I de- I always try to cook it over a real fire. Um, I just think it tastes so much better, but it's also more romantic to see, right? Like seeing the mm-hmm. 
seeing the fire and hearing the sizzle, it has a different smell to it, you know, than doing something like cooking in a pan. Just the charring happens differently. And it's more, I don't know, there's something about, there's a lot of like, I say a lot of weird esoteric stuff about the beefsteak. I, I think there's something about, uh, you know, I don't want to read too much into it, but just eating with your hands, you know, it's like what we do naturally. Like we didn't, our, as kids, we don't use forks. Our ancestors didn't have forks, you know? Um, so just the process of eating meat with your hands from a fire is I think something that's a little bit part of us. Um, and it can be fun to embrace that. Not to mention it's delicious, hopefully. And just getting your hands dirty kind of forces you to be present, put your phone down, you know, you're, you, there's an interesting stat that I always think about is, and it's, there was some study that was done about what people remember about what they eat. And you're much more inclined to remember a mediocre meal that was served family style than you are to remember a really fine meal where everyone got their plate. So like, for example, you know, if you go to a Chinese restaurant and they, you know, there's just like a big pile of general South chicken in the center or whatever it is, everybody's digging in there and talking and eating and sharing it. You're more inclined to recall that meal and exactly what the meal was than if you go to a fine restaurant and pay 300 bucks and get, you know, the perfect breast of pheasant, on some sort of potato puree or something like that with a nice glass of wine. Like you ask someone three weeks later what they had at their, that meal, they won't remember it. Um, so something about the beefsteak is it just kind of turns your mind on and forces you to be present um, in a way that I hope is good for building community. Because um, it lets people, I don't know, I haven't done a lot of talking, saying these things out loud. It helps me to kind of articulate. I can't articulate them as well as I would like to. You still here with me? Are you frozen? Well, yeah, these are good practices. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, no, I think it's good practice to talk about it and, you know, to have that open dialogue, because a lot of the things that you're doing is you're bringing something, you know, you said it was 1939. I looked at that, you know, website. It's it's pretty neat. You know, some of the just the picture of those guys. But, you know, bringing this awareness out, this is you, you can't be too scripted with it. You, you're making it up as you go. But, you you know, you, you know what your intention, your destination is that you want. And it's one thing is, you know, we brought up earlier is is definitely bridging gaps here. The other thing is, you know, forming that community, that intentional type of conversation that does happen around that mill. Well, let's look at the psychology of that. Well, you're going to do it whenever it is more of a, a, a collective community type of effort to, you know, eat with your hands you can't be around your phones like you said and it's just something that you're you know it sticks in your brain once you have that emotion tied to that you're going to try to you know attach yourself to that type of emotion again so you repeat that habit and you know it goes with us as far as what's the beef <laughs> what's the beef steak what is your intention? Yeah. What is your why? All that kind of good stuff. And it is good to talk about this because even the people that are listening to us, you know, when this comes out, they're going to, you know, they're going to try to emulate some of that 
we're painting pictures here. And so it's good to have that dialogue. I like it because it's, it's a form of innovation that comes with prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when, now that you say that you, you mentioned listeners, like something that I would encourage people to do is have your own four or five person B stick. Like it doesn't have to be a crazy big event. Like just have some people over and just dispense with the plates and forks. Like you don't need them. You just put out a cutting board and just slice the steak and everybody kind of stands around and just eats from the cutting board with their hands. It's just a different, it's still a meal, but it's a different experience. Um, and it's fun. I think it kind of just, a, it's a, it's a, it's nice for a change. Um, I just encourage people to give it a shot. Well, we have, are you, yeah. Well, I mean, we have the main option in everything. Go ahead. Are you a carnivore? I mean, in other words, do you, oh, yeah. are you a person that eats only meat? Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your path to that? Cause I, I, my meat, my life revolves around meat and meat cooking, but I would not consider myself a carnivore. Like I love, I love tomatoes too much to be a carnivore. Um, well, in for the most I part, I'm a carnivore, you know, for the most part I am, I, you know, I'll, I eat avocados, I eat asparagus, I eat, you know, all that. That's how I was raised. I, my grandparents were farmers and, you know, they produced their own animal protein. Um, I've never been a hardcore carnivore. No, I, that's, okay, that's, okay. that's, it's not something that I, no, I'm not raising my hand and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. Um, for the most part, I'd say 80, 90% of everything I eat is, is definitely, you know, animal protein. That's how I look at it. Um, my path to that is just, it's how I was raised. This just, we yeah. had our, we had our beef and we had our animal protein. We had our eggs and bacon. We had, you know, we had our two vegetables because we had, that, you know, we came, my, all of our produce came from grandfather's farm. So we really didn't have yeah. to worry about much, you know, from canning, you know, everything. So I've never really had a hard time trying to debate what the best way to eat. I just ate really good when I grew up. I've had my times of going across the world and in, in being in corporate America where I eat like crap. Uh, I choose not to do that anymore. I know the difference. Yeah, I don't even pay much in mind. It is just who I am. And a lot of people yeah. get very deep into, you know, as far as paleo, you know, and carnivore and vegan. And it, I just don't go there. I just know what works for me and my family. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's the ideal, right? Like you just, it, it all ends up being like an individual right. basis. And, um, and I was just curious if, if you had, cause I, it's something I struggle with. Like I phase in and out of it. I have kids. I think that it's something about like some downsides to New York city are it's like, it's just hard to, you can't control everything they put in their bodies. Right. You know, like obviously at no. home I can, I can, I can manage a little, a little bit better, but inevitably they're going to have fruity pebbles at some friend's house. Right. And then, and it's fine for them to have that, but then they're going to want it forever right um and they're not going to always understand that's the plan why 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 it's not here yeah for sure uh it, it's just a it's a 
having kids changes how you choose those battles, I guess. Um, and also how you fight those battles. Um, and it ends up being, you want to teach them to make good choices, right? Not force them to eat well, but you, and you kind of have to do both. And then ideally you want that for everyone, right? You want for everyone to be able to make good choices, but for the people that grow up on fruity pebbles, it's harder to make that transition. Um, it's really hard, especially because part of that part well, of the fruity pebbles breakfast is hearing that meat is bad for you. Right. Um, uh -huh. I guess yeah. I, I, I put them in the same box anyways. Well, I'll tell you this much. I mean, I, I have no problem saying how we feed our kids in this country is criminal. And it is because we're basically, you know, whenever a country of 320, whatever it is, million right now, 40%, 46% of children, 5 to 11, are now overweight or obese. That's almost 50% of our children at a very important stage of their lives are already starting off with uh, a handicap because the food that they're eating, the number one reason they learn about food anymore in the United States is through their taste buds. And that is it. Yeah. And you have multi-billion dollar corporations, global corporations, engineering chemicals to make your kid only want those chemicals. It has nothing to do with food. The food is the, the trash that you recycle for them. The intent is for them to engineer your taste buds to where you will be hungry every four hours and you will crave it. With the way that our FDA is set up, how the USDA is set up, the, it's nothing more than a chemical company providing your kids a chemical solution that makes them think that it tastes good. And, and if people do not realize that, we have all the facts. We have all the statistics. We have everything from the USDA, the FDA, everything you want. It's public information. We have a metabolical failure in this country the last two years that was proven in ways that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Our food is becoming nothing more than a marketing plan. And there's global corporations investing billions of dollars to make sure that does not change. So as yeah. far as, you know, we're not, none of us is ever going to get around eating crap food. It's going to happen. I travel a lot. I'll eat crap food. But one thing I do is I have a foundational layer of understanding what real food is. And I pursue yeah. that above and beyond anything else that I consume. And when we start trying to black and white our food system, we're not going to win. We have to understand that there's a lot of gray areas here and we're going to do the best we can with the education that we have. The education and the rule of law of food is about to change because people are going to become very aware of what food intelligence really is. Once they have that sense of awareness, maybe it is attending one of your beefsteaks. They're going to go, holy shit, why am I eating the way I am? And this is not a judgment on anybody. This is an awareness. This is an awakening that we can engineer to where we don't have to worry about our kids not having good health anymore. We're going to provide solutions in education to where that kid is going to want, you know, some good beef jerky over a dang 
box or a bag of uh, whatever Doritos that are fire, fire flamed, extra yeah, hot, yeah, yeah. whatever those yeah. things are, you know, and, <laughs> yes, and that's, that takes time. It takes too much. Yeah, exactly. It sucks. I, I, my boy is 17 years old and he loves Takis, you know, it's that, that thing. And that's, and, and it's a horrible thing, but he also eats a lot of dang protein. He works out every day and he understands food. He's going to eat his Takis. He's, he doesn't yeah. like sugar and he never has, which I was very lucky that he didn't, but you know, not everybody can say that, especially in a city like Brooklyn. You're right, man. It, it's different there than it is in Canyon, Texas or Austin, Texas. We, we all do yeah. not live in the same type of environment. We all have different options, limitations, bottlenecks, different education, different awareness. And so we all just have to kind of come together to create a collective general understanding of let's look at food again. Let's do beef steak. Let's uh, let's go to a conference with Beef Initiative and understand these ranchers. And as you said before, you know, it's you want to tackle. It's a huge problem, right? But you have to tackle it. Mm one one meal at a time right you have to you have to build smaller places and corner smaller communities and make it make good food available to them and let them see Uh how it changes their life right um Uh and that's a hard thing to do like i think about like how would i do that in new york city you know like where do you where do you plant the seed of change for eating if I'm going to do it beyond my own table? Right. Like, do I try to do it at my kid's school? Uh-huh. Like it would, that would be so hard. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, like there's, it's so the diverse. Government, the government owns the food supply. Yeah. The government owns the public food supply school. You're, that's not that, that, you know, that's, that's, that was part of the infrastructure bill that they're going to, feed kids and they're in New York city, they're going to have vegetarian Fridays, you know, no meat Fridays. And you know, the the government. uh You have to like, if it's going to be a diverse group, it's really hard to create a, a meal system that uh, full of good food that serves that entire group. Right. Cause you're going to have people who are kosher people who are, kosher style people who are halal you know you can't have pork there's all these allergies and then it's like it becomes it becomes this like whirlwind of overwhelming restrictions and and then it becomes really hard to create change for groups of people around food um like you have to have Mm -hmm. especially diverse groups of people um like I think about doing it in Missouri, it would be so much easier in Missouri because everybody wants to have steak in Missouri. Like they would be happy if we created a place, sure. a way to give people more steak. Um, and they could, they could grow it and process it there. You know, like if it was set up, serving a city is just a hard thing. I don't know. I feel like I'm talking about problems and not really solutions here, but it's a, <laughs> it is something. Well, it is overwhelming. And yeah. Yeah. And one thing that I've noticed about it, because, you know, I went into this, you know, uh, looking at it from a global standpoint, of course, because that's who feeds us is a global 
global corporations do. You know, we got away, you know, all of the food that, you know, most people eat are shipped in from a hundred miles away and they don't know that at least a hundred miles away or from overseas, whatever. So you look at it, it, it's freaking (laughs) daunting. Yeah, exactly. It's daunting to think about, hey, how we're going to change. No, we we got to look at it. We got to look at it at your community. We got to look your your community starts at your dinner table. <laughs> That's your first community, and so if you are doing the best intentional form of education to your family and friends within that system that eats at your dinner dinner table, you're doing your job. If it is based on truth. And it has, and it comes with basically strength and power and clarity and something that is intentional and it has integrity. Guess what? It's going to spread. And we, we, we don't have to worry about saving the world or feeding the world. We feed the world by feeding our table. And yeah. if you, it's hard to do. It's, it's a balancing act that we all have to perform because we're trying to ch- make mass changes. You know, we're trying to be disruptors in a way. I am at least. And so I think about that all the time, but I, I have to go back to the teachings that I was raised with, you know, it's one lamb at a time here. And, and I'm okay with that because I have faith and in, in trust that, that, you know, it's based on truth and honesty and some integrity behind it. If we can look at food with integrity again, instead of entertainment or, or, you know, a desire that we should not be having, you know, I ask people, why do you desire what you desire? You know, where, where do you start with food? Well, let's get to the source of the seed of that food. Where did it come from? Can you name yeah. that person? Can you look at them in the eye? Well, that's how I do it every time. I go to my local processor every two weeks. I go to my regional processor once a month. I look them in the eye and I shake their hands and I say, thank you. How can I help you? Thank you for feeding me. Tell me more. I want to know more. And therefore, so in the long run, what we're doing Go ahead. Yeah, I have a question for you because you I've heard you say that before that food we view food as entertainment. Um, and I think, you know, mm-hmm. as a chef, you know, my job is to take food and make it enjoyable, right? And I think that food should be enjoyable and I think that food should be something that we look forward to consuming and 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 if we enjoy it um we're more inclined to want to share it right like and then when we share our good food it becomes more of a part of our lives and then hopefully more something that we aspire to more and we put more energy into creating good food and we value it more so i wonder if you would categorize what i just described as a form of entertainment? And if not, how would you distinguish what I just described from food being entertaining? Well, you're the way I look at it and yes to everything you said, the way I see it is that the, what you just explained was based on a formal uh, understanding and education of what you're going to start that maybe it is entertainment. What are you starting with? Are you starting with a cardboard box that has a picture of a freaking blue elephant on it and saying this tastes good? That's entertainment. No, you're starting with a pure sense of animal protein. And then you're going to say, Hey, I want this to be savory. I want to honor this animal. I want people to enjoy this 
this this type of um, um, process that they're going to go through as far as consumption and understanding and tasting and smelling. That is totally different than what we've changed the the food supply into. So when I say entertainment, I mean, whenever your kid goes with you to the supermarket and you're walking down the middle aisles and you have to say no 42 times, that's entertainment. <laughs> that's nothing more. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost and, like and it's you feel like that, that, you know, whenever you. Yeah, you're like describing a, a dopamine hit almost, right? Where it's like someone sees a, a brightly colored package with sparkles. And like, I remember being drawn mm-hmm. into certain things like this as a kid, you know, like I just, I didn't even like, the truth is that Pop-Tarts are gross, right? They just have a cool box and a good commercial. Like yeah. who likes a pop tart? Yeah. And when exactly. did you look forward to eating a pop tart? Um, they're kind of disgusting. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. I, I'm with you now. I, I hear what you're saying. It, it's like, it, it's a fine line of being a dopamine hit and, and being an enjoyable experience that you appreciate over time. Man, I, people know integrity when they see it. They know sophistication when they see it. Let's yeah. bring sophistication back to food. And let's not make it a cartoon, you know, because food is a cartoon. How many different types of food products changed their advertising and marketing for for this past Sunday, the Super Bowl? Yeah, oh it had nothing gosh. to do with the food. It, it had to do with the marketing campaign. It had to do with how can we make this look cooler, you know, just from the beer commercials to whatever snacks that everybody's going to have during the Super Bowl. You know, it, it's a marketing campaign. And my last podcast was, was with Matt and he's, he's coming into the beef initiative is, you know, we're working together on a lot of things. He came from the food industrial complex. He's been around the world. He used to design marketing plans. And if there's anybody that knows that our food is, has nothing to do with food anymore, that it's nothing more than a global marketing plan. Well, this guy does, and he's got proof of work. (laughs) So it's interesting that you might want to listen to that podcast. It's a fascinating discovery and a lot of things, how things work on these big global um, food companies that are feeding our children. Yeah, I will. I will listen to it. Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a colossal, like I keep thinking about, gaps to fill that's a good way to put it there's just a lot of information gaps it is and and skill gaps also you know just kind of but also accessibility Uh it's hard to get good like where i am i guess it's not hard you could go to special stores but if you go to the special stores you have to pay out the wazoo so i guess it's hard to get good affordable meat um you know one thing that actually happens up here that i have come across a couple of times is farms that process their own meat and then in order to buy the meat from them you have to sign and sign like all these waivers and agree that you're becoming part of their meat co-op and what you're buying is not actually food wink wink um and that's some of that beef is some of the best beef i've ever had actually um and i you know i was going to tell you right there what does that tell you? Hmm. I I don't know what it tells me. I, I I mean, to me, it tells me the the U.S. like all the USDA rules. They're not helping us, right? Um, they're 
hurting farmers and making good food harder for us to get. Um, and then the other thing is like a USDA plant, it's not owned by the USDA, it's owned by a private company. And if a small farmer wants to go produce beef through a, a USDA plant, then the big producers, the big beef producers can say to that plant, if you're going to produce these small farmers beef, we're going to take our business elsewhere. Like we don't want these little competitors popping up everywhere. And that happens all the time. So uh, it's, it's, it's like a hard battle. You have to get those small facilities set up. There used to be mobile ones in New York, like trailers that would travel around to farms, right. but they just kept losing money. So yeah. they shut them all down. Um, What it tells you about as far, yeah, whatever, what it tells you about our, our animal protein industry is that it's basically captured in a way that we don't understand as, as, as a nation. And let's say maybe it's a good thing or a bad thing for feeding the world, whatever processing centers. Most of the processing centers are, are basically global processing centers. Three of the biggest processing centers in the United States are not American companies. They're from Brazil. They're international global companies that have total control over the processing of our animal protein in this nation. And if people were more understanding of really the, the, the control that they have over you having access to good beef or animal protein, people will start waking up. And then of course, that's what I'm trying to you know bring as far as awareness. Um, why would it be hard to get the best protein? Why do they make it so restrictive? Well, that's because of rules and regulations that the lobbyists are able to do with our United States government to where the global processing centers have precedence over who gets to eat what and when. And that's just the truth. That's, that's, that's just how it is. So by saying that, you're right. We have to get these microprocessing centers off. But we also have to get the awareness of the general public as well. You know, when they say, why is beef so expensive? They don't understand. They say, oh, it's a cattle shortage. There is not a cattle shortage in this country. There's a control over when and where you can process that cat that that animal protein that's what's going on and there's a lot of nuances to it there's a lot of different factors to it but if if the general public knows this and they start becoming more intentional with sourcing their protein and it takes a little time but once you have that relationship you know new york is different than texas um but that's what we're doing we're inviting any rancher that wants to reach out to their local communities or to their regions or to their state or to the United States, come through the beef initiative. Let us tell your story and let us announce you to the world in a way that you want to be presented. So we can have that conversation with each micro um, rancher, uh, grass farmer, animal protein, you know, fowl, hog, lamb. It doesn't matter. It's just not about beef. Yeah. So are you, are you guys just like, are you trying to stay in Texas? I know you were saying you were dropping to Texas and you're just becoming the beef initiative. Does our, like if someone yeah, needs help no. in New York, yeah, we're, you, we're across the United States. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're popping sure. out everywhere. hundred awesome. percent. We're, we, yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to be national. I started with the Texas Beef Initiative, kind of thinking, well, you know, let's do this. But it really isn't. A, it isn't a state thing now. We know we're going to have a lot of different laws and re- regulations in different states. Well, let's start those conversations so we know what they are, so we can say, hey, there. Here's another solution that we didn't think about. Nobody's doing this. Well, if they're trying to do yeah. it, one thing that keeps us very strong right now and very powerful is the Bitcoin community. Because this is exactly what Bitcoin is about. It's like, okay, we're going to build a parallel community here, a parallel economy that we know how to do. If we don't know how to do it, we're going to innovate through it with iteration after iteration. And that's why you and I are talking. You and I would never have met each other with it if it not for Bitcoin, probably. It's true. And, and that's, that's, you- that's our glue that a lot of people don't understand. What would you say have been some of your biggest successes with this project so far? Biggest successes that I thought I might have a harder time is, uh, you know, speaking to individual ranchers and just the diversity of ranching and grass farming and animal protein, you know, you, you get a lot of pushback. Um, for some reason, I think it's just the times that we are in there. They are looking for other ideas, other solutions. They're, they're wanting right now. My biggest thing is ranchers want to know about Bitcoin and Bitcoin wants to know about beef. Yep. hundred percent. I mean, I've got ranchers saying, let teach me, I need to know more about this and their understanding. And I tell everybody on every time I can, you get a rancher that's been ranching for 40 years, having to play with the manipulation of our, our um, regulations when it comes to uh, protein delivery to our civilians and our, our countrymen and everybody that lives in this nation. Well, they know futures, they know commodity manipulation, they know weather, they know everything that goes in. Whenever they learn about Bitcoin on the way that we're going to provide education, there's going to be a light that comes on and the beef industry is going to change forever. And it's going to happen. And we're getting close to some conversations I'm having. They're starting to see things that nobody's been talking about. You know, I asked, I asked a rancher, I said, where's the value of your cow? Can you tell me? Yeah, some of them can. They'll say the USDA insurance policy. And then, you know, somebody yeah, might crazy. be able to say, well, it's in that cat. In the, it's in that calf. It's like, well, how is that calf protected? Well, through an USDA insurance policy. Here we go again. So we're going to say, well, there's a new store of value in town here, and we're going to educate you. Let's let's have this discussion. You want to accept Bitcoin, and we can start teaching you. Let's do transactional Bitcoin. Not everybody's going to buy beef, and they don't have to. But it begins the conversation of a bigger spectrum of what Bitcoin is going to do to our food supply in a decentralized way that I have no doubts about. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, I when I think about ranchers, I – Every time I hear a rancher talk, they always say something to the effect of, I'm not doing this for the money. <laughs> you know, they're all kind of like, I, I do, I'm doing this because I, I love this. Um, and it's what I know. And often, if they're parents, they're putting a fair amount of effort into trying to get their kids not to do ranching. <laughs> You know, um, not because they don't love it, but because it's just not like an enviable lifestyle. And I, I think I always draw a comparison there with chefs because I was fortunate to kind of sneak out of restaurants relatively early and start working in catering and privately a little bit more. And 
that was a better lifestyle. But since then, I've spent a lot of time trying to talk people out of becoming a chef because they think that it's like this, like fancy lifestyle and you're going to, you know, travel and do it's none of those things. It's terrible. It's a terrible lifestyle. You work all the time. It's incredibly hard work. You get paid almost nothing. You know, it's like working in. So I had like, I had a, I worked privately for a while and then I was a, a owner in a catering company um, leading into 2008 crash basically. Right. And all our clients were just like these New York hoity-toity stores and rich people. And my partner got sick with cancer and the economy crashed and our business just dissolved kind of overnight with one Sleeman brothers and Bear Stearns and all that stuff went to shit. So I went back after years to working in restaurants and it was like a brutal reminder of how hard it is. It is so hard. It is so hard, the job. And I worked in a really nice restaurant and all the guys that are in that restaurant, you know, they're 25 and they're working 60 to 80 hours a week and making 23 grand a year. And they are at the top of their game, you know, like they are really good cooks. And if they were putting that much time into anything else, they would be building towards a really great career. But, but that's not what chefing is, you know, like the, you end up like in the best case scenario, you get a, you get your own restaurant and you barely get by for the rest of your life. And I feel like sometimes that's what ranching can, it's what it, I hear when ranchers describe what ranching can feel like sometimes. It's like really the struggle is to get by. Um, and it would be awesome to create a scenario where ranchers are, just crushing it, right? Because they should be crushing it. And we should be giving them a lot more respect for the, the product they're giving us. I can't tell if you're still there or not. Hey, guys, sorry about that. We had an internet outage here at uh, Texas Beef Initiative <laughs> uh, podcasting studio. Uh, it's not a good one yet. It's getting better. But anyways, we apologize for that. It's been a couple of days. We took a break. Uh, my internet was out for pretty much that day. Um, I did a little uh, intro there and letting you know at the beginning of the podcast, but we're here. I'm back with Away Slice. How are we doing, sir? Doing all right. I'm doing all right. I feel like I'm recouped since last time I talked to you. I, I was a little bit behind on everything last time. Yeah, we, we, it was kind of a rush day. I mean, you were going out of town. I was kind of, I think I was going to, uh, I had something that, you know, that afternoon. So we were trying to put it in cause we wanted to get it out and have a, you know, a pretty cool discussion, but I think it's a blessing cause now we can do that and maybe extend it out a little bit better. I had a little time to think and um, seeing a lot that's going on with the beef initiative. You know, I really think that you and I maybe should kind of talk about what your year looks like, you know, whatever you've got planned. I can kind of talk about what my year looks like and let's try to get a conversation going about how do we do a beef steak and a beef initiative uh, whatever we want to call it, you know, yeah. consumption model. So what's up? So, so 
I always say this to people of for sure the first step and the hardest part of making a beefsteak happen is where to do it. Right. So like where, mm-hmm. like you think we could do it on our, could we do it on a farm? Could we do it in a barn, like a ranch? Like, is it rude to cook a bunch of beef in front of cows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that. well, those are, it's, it's something that you're pioneering. I think that we just answer those steps as long, you know, as we go further, I think, I think something on a ranch would be fantastic. I think there's a lot of ranchers out there that would love, you know, being able to pull something off like this because, you know, they love talking about their product. They love talking about the the animal stewardship. They accept, you know, that, you know, this is the destiny of the cow. Maybe it is that we have a big cookout. And I don't think they're going to be like front and center, but, you know, the cows might be close. Yeah, no, I mean, that's part of the Vista, right? Like you just get out there and, the wind's blowing mm-hmm. and you, you gotta see it. And I just, you know, I love, you know, I, I grew up on, I didn't grow up on the farm, but we just, we had a cattle farm in the family and I just, the smell of cattle farms always just makes me think of my childhood. I love the smell of cattle farms. It's a distinct smell. Um, it is, it, it's something that until you've experienced it, I, I lived, um, of close, you know, very close to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven feedlots. Not that they were overly close, but you know, if it was a dewy morning and the wind was kind of a breeze, you definitely got that. That was that's that was part of your core belief system of of being raised around cattle. And I think I was talking with Jason with uh, uh, Rick Ranch Farms and. He, he, you know, he talked about something. He gets to go out every day, and you go up, and a cow is sitting there in the smell and uh, of the cow. But even the sound of it chewing, the teeth, the 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 little special things that you get to be like whenever you're on a ranch. A lot of people oh, don't man. understand that. They really don't. The other thing is, I was thinking about it as you were saying that, like the, the smell of the cow. Something. The other thing I always think about is the sound. It's always a dirt road right when you're pulling up to those places and it's the sound of the gravel under tires you know it's like that crunch and the windows are down i just it's such a good it's a good experience and that'd be a great way to roll into a beefsteak smelling those smells and hearing those sounds you know i feel like uh and we got to find a place i bet you i bet you there's some great ranches have some good like outdoor cooking setups too you know like they're just like i bet some of them are set up to do that stuff even because they just do it for themselves you, you you're making me think because I was looking at what I'm I'm going to be in Texas for a conference and then I'm going to be uh, in Colorado, uh, Georgia, and then in November somewhere. But that's too far off. You know, I've got a I've got a buddy of mine that I've met doing what I'm doing, and he has a place out in Tennessee. I mean, it's making oh, me man. think Tennessee. And he's out there uh, towards, you know, the eastern part of Tennessee, which a lot of people, you know, don't might not get to because of Nashville, Memphis and all that other stuff. That part of Tennessee is absolutely beautiful. And he's got some acreage out there and everything. People will come. If we throw it, we got to make them work for it. 
Oh yeah, this is this is something that f- from here on out. I mean, you got to have proof of work in your whole lifestyle. You know, yeah, the, yeah. the rent seeking days are over with. You know, if we're I was a rent seeker, I admit it. <laughs> but you know, we all have a level of you know proof of work in our lives, and it's, it has to be that intentional living is the only way for me. I won't consider yeah. anything else. Yeah. Um, how far, like how long of a drive is East Tennessee from Nashville? I don't know Tennessee geography at all off the top of my head. Man, I, I don't think it's too far. Probably four and a half, five hours tops, I would think. Yeah. Tops. But I'm, t- you know, I look at it from Texas, like it was six hours to get to Dallas yesterday from me yeah. or to get back from Dallas. And so, you know, Austin's eight hours for me. So I, I, maybe it's like three and a half, four hours as the yeah. crow flies. Yeah. Awesome. I think it's yeah, worth do it. doing. You know, from the Nashville guys out there, you you know, definitely. You know what? The the governor of uh, Tennessee, he, you know, he proclaims himself to be a rancher. So, um, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of ranching south of Nashville, I I think. So there's there could be some places out there as well. Yeah. 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 Like at the risk of like doxing myself, I I look around for like big plots of land and like. Tennessee is a, there's a big draw to Tennessee for me. I just love that. I love that North Georgia, Chattanooga river line, all that up and down there. It's a beautiful part of America. And, uh, that, that area right below Nashville keeps popping up, keeps popping up, getting blown across my bow. That's um, that's funny. Same with a lot of uh, people out in California too, <laughs> or all yeah. over really. Yeah. If I wasn't in Texas, I'd I, I tell people I'd be in Tennessee. And whenever I was young, I was like 19 or 20. I took a road trip all the way from Texas to Maine. And uh, I'd first time I'd seen the Smoky Mountains out there in eastern Tennessee. And I fell in love with it. Just the whole, that part of it, like you're saying, there's so much about Tennessee that is fun. And I always yearn to get back there as well. Yeah, yeah. I gotta get. I, I need to make a trip to Nashville. It's been on my list for quite a while now. I gotta make that meetup that they're organizing down there. It sounds pretty badass. Yeah, talk about a, a little bit more about that. I wish I knew more about it. Um, I can't remember the guy. I can't remember the handle of the guy off off the offhand the, the organizer, but but they're just getting it together. They got it all organized out. Um, actually. No, I'm not going to look it up right now. It's going to take me too much time. But uh, you should look into it. I mean, there's just a there's just a bunch of great Bitcoiners in Nashville. A bunch of people passing through all the time. Um, you know, the BTC Mag guys are there, and there's a lot going on. This is a great reason to go someplace. You know, just hang out with some. And I've been on the road. I was able to see some Bitcoiners. It makes me think. I'm, I'm just so grateful for my Bitcoiner friends. Like you show up, we've been sharing some Airbnbs, and we just you know, it's like family to me. Um, and it's just nice to like wake up and have coffee with those guys in the morning and just chat. Um, it's special. It's a unique world. Yeah, it, it is. I was, um, I went to Dallas, like I said, I was there for a bunch of meetings. I was meeting a, a bunch of people in the beef industry and it was really great. Uh, meeting all of them, but we went to a, a barbecue. Uh, Greg Leland has a barbecue out there in Dallas, and we went to that Friday night. And it was everybody was just really cool. I mean, had a lot of great conversation. It free flowed the whole time. 
um, all day Saturday. I was around some of the solid Bitcoiners that, you know, I've been working with for a while. And basically life just flows and it is, it's an ease. There's less friction. Uh, you're talking about yeah. intentional things that matter right now. Uh, it's, it comes from a lot of truth and I mean, people are motivated, you know, it's not like saying, Hey, you know, my work sucks or, you know, I'm so hungover. I've never even came across any negative or even non-beneficial conversations when I've been to these places. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even when you do, I feel like a lot of the Bitcoiners I knew are a lot of Bitcoiners I know are more more prepared to have a friendly disagreement than the rest of my normal friends. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they're not, no one's mean, but everybody's like combative a little bit and used to being contrarian and used to being around contrarians. And I love that part of it because it's kind of, it's kind of something that's disappearing from the world a little bit for me anyways, especially in New York, people just are worried to disagree about things. Um, it's so true. It, it's like some, I, I did a report. It was back in the year 2000s or something whenever I was in the corporate world. <clears throat> and it was a it was a kind of a projective report on the division of interpersonal communication <clears throat> and what that was going to mean using digital devices, everything. One of the, the, one of the effects was how people were not going to be able to communicate in a very honest way. It was, there's going to be a lot of uh, antisocial behavior and people were not able to have those kind of complex discussions that uh, require a little combativeness, I guess. And mm -hmm. you can only have that whenever you're face to face with somebody and you're coming from the same uh, foundation of intention, maybe finding truth. And so you're, you're yeah. going to be willing to test those boundaries and you're not going to internalize stuff so much because you're pretty confident going into the discussions. And that yeah. it does yeah. take this Bitcoin type of ethos of mentality of, you know, how we're working together to get something bigger and better. I'm, yeah. I'm feeling it in my life. That's a good that's yeah. a good point. And yeah, it, yes. And you have to be able to disagree and you have to, to a certain extent, surround yourself with people that disagree with you, which creates tension in your life, which makes you improve. Right. So you need people to tell you when you're being a shithead and you need people to tell you the truth when you're doing something that's not as good as it could be. Right. But also mm -hmm. people that compliment you when you are doing a good job. Um, so, and you need somebody to, to tell you when you have a booger in your mustache or something. Also, <laughs> exactly. You, you know, like, exactly. Yeah. Or, or that you're, you're kind of being an, an asshole and you need to chill out a little bit <laughs> or, right. you know, that's your right. perspective is a little off, you know, you're kind of projecting some of your own bullshit on something. So check yourself. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is so, that's funny. You bring that up. I was in Dallas and, and I, <laughs> I'm very intentional about what I've been doing, but you know, sometimes free flowing is easy for me. And right now I'm finding out that, you know, there's some people out there that are 10 times smarter than me that are wanting to be a part of everything that I'm doing. And I'm, I, I have enough um, of a um, understanding of what an ego is. And I know that I'm not the smartest guy in the room. 
And some of my little, you know, dreams and everything, they check me and say, hey, have you done this case study? Do you know all this? You know, you need to get a little bit more grounded here, a little bit more focused on what is this, you know, what is it that you're really trying to do? Great conversations, but those came naturally. Nobody's getting paid to do this. And usually it's somebody consulting you that's getting a, a payment fee. And so you hear that from a good conversation of people that you've been talking to for three hours, you're going to listen and you're going to, you're definitely going to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that all the time when I meet people. Um, And some people you'll meet who are super successful and experts in their field will still talk to you like they're ready and expecting to learn something from you. Right. Whereas other people in the same position will speak to you more like they're expecting you to learn something from them. Um, And I tend to be drawn more to the curious, curious minded, inquisitive people, mainly because I learn more from them than the people who expect me to learn from them. Um, So that's just something I've always drawn. I'm always drawn to. I love that. Yeah, it reminds me of, I guess it's experiential education training. It's kind of that that hands-on type approach where, you, you you know, the the situation at hand is the education with somebody leading, somebody following, but somebody also contributing. And that's the curiosity part that you bring up. It, it, it happens naturally. I've seen that with like, you know, te- getting – uh, teaching. I used to do a nonprofit for a couple of years. And what we did is uh, underprivileged kids. And we did experiential training. We did ropes courses. We did, you know, uh, confidence building with a zip line, all that kind of stuff. And those That's kids in these kids, you, you look at them and they're underprivileged and they're going to be un, undereducated or under advised. And so you get them there around that experiential training, man, they, they blow up. You see so many good things that happen and you see it in their eyes and they, they have that confidence in their life is really cool for that amount of time. And then they have to go into the centralized bullshit system in which we live in. And no wonder, you know, they're not progressing because people don't even know how to educate anymore. And, yeah. you know, I was thinking about that because of how, how you're doing it, how you're getting so close to the damn cow with what, you know, the, with the beef steaks. There's, there's a new form of learning and teaching and it's collective and we're having a, you know, we're, we're crowdsourcing it. And that's what you and I are doing right now. just talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's like you got to, you have to, I've never really thought about it this way, but it's hard to passively attend a beefsteak, right? just like it would be hard to passively attend the the what you just described with the rope courses you can't show up yeah you you can't show up and those kids can't show up and not change right like they have to get involved they have to maybe overcome a little bit of fear and if nothing else they have to like just have fun and engage for a little while um and all those things will change you, even if it's just for a small amount of time or in a little bit, in a little way. Um, it's amazing that you did that. That's really cool. I'm sure it, I'm sure it was really rewarding as well. Yeah, it really is. Um, my dad was a, he was a 
coach for the uh, community when I was growing up. So it was called Kids mm-hmm. Incorporated. He did it for like 20 years. So I played like four sports <laughs> ever since I was like preschool all the way, in, you know, up and through high school and everything. But I learned a lot about, you know, kind of the coaching aspect of things. Um, one thing I, I, where I grew up, I was about four hours from the mountains and I I've been skiing ever since I could walk, but I've, I used to ski instruct too, but I, I didn't really like, uh, teaching the adults because they're no fun, but the kids are, uh, man, they're a blast and it kind of evolved, evolved into teaching autistic kids. I was kind of oh, wow. known for having very good success with them and it happened hundred percent naturally. It was just something that happened. But so, by saying that, go ahead. This is I just interrupt you for a second. I I just learned to ski last week for the first time. I've never skied before. Oh and, really? Uh, I lucked out. I got a great instructor, and I just spent one day skiing with him and another person. And then the next day, I was able to ski by myself, and it was so much fun. And it was also a big fear of mine, kind of learning to keep ski. My wife is kind of like a badass skier and she just mm-hmm. skied since she was little. And, uh, and I haven't, I've never, I never skied when I was a kid my family, it just wasn't something my family did. So it was awesome. I loved it. And part of the reason I say that is because I feel like I was probably kind of a fun guy to teach even right. though I was an adult. <laughs> you said, well, you probably <laughs> would. <laughs> that's cool i mean that's a great experience i'm glad you you experienced that because there's so much philosophy that goes into skiing there's so much yeah. you can use and leverage and overcome fears and it's just amazing communication you know there's it's it's an amazing sport to kind of drill down into and kind of dissect and find out which which angle that you can you can learn from, and that's kind of how I approach with the autistic you know children. Um, tell me about your experience. What are you uh, are you skiing pretty good? Did you fall on your ass a bunch? What happened? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it. I I only bit it like once or twice. I was kind of like I really wanted to. I wanted to not, I wanted to pace myself because I had skied one day in the past and uh, I was with my brother and my wife and I did not pace myself. And as a result, it was a bad experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I partially blame my brother and my wife for that. (laughs) But really it was my fault. Like I should have just, I bit off more than I could chew and it just ended up being a bad day. And, but this time I was like, just determined not to do that. And, um, and it was a great time. The instructor was, he was great. He was a little bit unusual, you know, like he would just we'd skate, ski, be skiing down the hill and I'd be kind of doing, going slow, doing my turns or whatever. And he'd just go, Josh, laugh. <laughs> like he'd just yell at me to laugh. And, uh-huh. and uh, I would like chuckle or something and just be like, I can't fucking hear you. I need for you to laugh so I can hear you. And then, and it was, you know, it just helped, you know, he was just like, you just need, he's like, you're just, you're not having fun yet. And he was, and it, and he was right. You know, and it's like, then you kind of like loosen up and then you kind of focus on just letting it happen, which you have to do in skiing. Right. Because there's, there's not really like exertion in skiing. Like you're letting gravity help you ski and and trying to force it never works like you kind of have to let it happen um and 
he was awesome. Uh, the way he did this progression of kind of like easy, harder, 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 and then back to the easy part. And, and he, and he kept doing that in, in progressions to show us how much we were improving over the course of the day. Um, and that helps build confidence, right? Which helps you relax more. Um, and I don't know, it was a great experience. I just loved it. No, yeah, you bring up kind of flashbacks. <clears throat> I always, uh, whenever first people, whenever I was like do adults, and I'm going to make fun of people, and I'm just doing this out of humor. So don't yeah, have anybody yeah. take this per not not you, but anybody listening, don't take this personal. It's just my experience, and I like to laugh about it. I'm kind of a smart ass, but anyways, these people would come from like uh, Dallas and stuff and you know, they're all, you know, dressed nice and all that. They always like to get drunk and night before, and then they're in the mountains, they have elevation, you know, they're hungover, you know, then they're, they're trying to ski for the first time. So I get them there and everybody's lined up in the line and you, you just make them, you say, I, I always made them just, you know, fall down. Okay, everybody get on the ground with skis on because everybody, you know, they don't even know how to get up and they're going to be on their ass a lot that day. So it's like you need first thing you need to learn how to do is get up and it's exerting. You know, you try to get up like you're getting up from the ground. That's not going to work. You know, everybody tries to walk with skis on. It's just a disaster. <laughs> And it, it, it's crazy because the mind works that way. And so you have to reprogram yourself. So you might as well start from the ground and then kind of learn how to get up from the side, you know, push yourself up. And time that the, you know, these people, a lot of the adults, they'd be spent within an hour and they just weren't planned and they weren't prepared for it. And they, it was, it was tough to teach them, but then you get yeah. somebody like you that really, you know, goes through that progression and skiing. All it is, is a flex and knowing when to flow, just let the flow happen and when to angle and press. And that's it. Yeah. And you become you become fluid with that mechanism. And that's that's the fun part to find out and kind of discover. Once you kind of get there, you know, especially if you have a good instructor, you're you're not gonna be hitting those black diamonds and all that kind of crap. You're really gonna enjoy skiing for what it is. It's that flow. And wherever yeah. you learn to flow down the mountain, it is. It's freedom. It's it's, it's amazing. It's stress. You can laugh, you can have fun. There's just so much you know, that's rewarding with what that, you know, with what you just got to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved it. Like, I just, I can't tell you how much I loved it. I just, I, we did it. I did it all day, two days in a row and I just didn't want it to end and I can't wait to go back and do it again. I thought it was great. Um, was the snow good? Was, you know, everything was the weather and snow. Was it nice? I mean, it was, uh, you know, I don't feel qualified to answer that question with the snow good. People say that it was good. Um, it wasn't that icy. I mean, in the, the, the places that I've gone like sledding where people complain about the snow being icy, it was, it did not feel icy, but it was not like what I also hear described as fresh powder because there hadn't been yeah. any snowstorm or anything like that. And they, they weren't putting fake snow out or anything like that. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of, it's kind of a generalization because you're saying good snow. I mean, some people say it's not good snow until you have eight inches of powder or a foot of, foot of powder or, you know, people like it groomed, whatever. As long as it wasn't slushy and icy, you, you're having a good time. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it was, uh, I was up in Jackson Hole, which was, it was beautiful there. I I loved it way better than I thought I would. And uh, I definitely, towards the end of the days, when it starts to, like, the shadows start to come across the hills, it was, and it was pretty cold up there. It was, like, coming around, like, zero at that time of day would get cooler. Uh And when those shadows came across the snow, it it would get icy sometimes. Sure. Um, that had that put that put me put scares put a scare in me a couple of times. I mean that caught me off guard. Um, <laughs> I lost control a couple of times on the ice, but other than that, I, I would say it was awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, that ice and sometimes you know you get to people whenever you're kind of trying to recover from maybe hitting a patch of ice or something, and people try not to fall and they try to and they make it worse. It's the best thing to do if you're out of control is lay down. Just just go yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let it happen. <laughs> Don't try to fight it. So when you were teaching autistic kids skiing, mm-hmm. can like do you have any good stories from that or or, or yeah. like techniques or how did how did that go? I can I, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to one, hear more about that. One one was uh, she was a young girl. She's about at the time let me think she was probably about 12 and she was out of Houston. Her family was out of Houston. <clears throat> And they had a cabin at the mountain that I was. And so they had a lot of trips and they, they booked a private course with me. Um, I'd do that like on my days off, I'd ski no matter what. And so you had that Liberty to do that, but, uh, they booked a private course is all day course. They kind of, you know, vetted me and everything, but she was autistic. She didn't like going to school. She, she was, you know, she was having a hard time. It wasn't because of anything. She was highly, highly, highly intelligent. It was just, you know, the, you know, forms of autism are different, very good heart. uh, Couldn't express herself in the right ways. One thing that I did with her that I noticed is I, I was able to tell that she, she thought in a different way. So what I told her is that we're going to learn how to ski backwards and not forwards but backwards and that took about 30 minutes and then something went off in our head and so the whole day all we did was ski backwards and we took opposite turns and so that led down to conversations with her to where she started putting a different form of logic into skiing so she was able to break down the procedures and the, the 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 forms the 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 abilities that everybody else was doing but she was doing it reverse well, that became a conversation that I had with her parents. And so we kind of built a curriculum about her and how what they gave me feedback. It was like what we were talking about before. We, we were collectively doing something and the, you know, the educators and the people that they, you know, counseling that they had taken her to never get, got to that point to where, you know, she could, she could function in that way. Well, and that was the first visit. She went back. She started enjoying school. She started having some really good success. So they had the means to come down a lot. So I think that was probably about five times just with her. And then that caught on and then more people found out. And so that winter was basically it was it was individual autistic kids, private lessons, talking with the parents and giving uh, proof of work of what we had done, starting with that first little girl <clears throat> and then where we progressed from there. Oh, that's awesome. I'm sure that was a lot. I mean, I'm, I can only imagine that job was just troubleshooting constantly for you. Um, yeah, it, it really it is. I mean. And that's that whatever skill set my I have is the troubleshooting part of it. I 
I was taught to look at everything from a 360 angle, how my mind works, I guess. I don't know, but you know, it is, it's troubleshooting. Um, speaking of autistic people, have you had much exposure to Temple Grandin um, or possibly watched the movie or know much about her history and story and all that stuff? Yeah, a friend of mine uh, out in Tennessee, actually a rancher in Tennessee, he 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 brought her up a, a while back and it's fascinating. I, I've got to go down there. We're trying to get out to there, actually, because he's doing a lot of networking and we would like to go out to Temple's place and just talk to her and really, you know, I haven't seen the movie yet and everything, but I, I know what, you, you know, her autism, how she's doing things is amazing. Yeah. I mean, talk about someone who just thinks about something completely differently than everyone else in her sector. I mean, I just, I, I used to always just Google podcasts and stuff because she'll go and do these interviews and she just, people ask questions and I just, first of all, she's relentlessly honest. She'll just be like, well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> you should be asking this question. And then she kind of like goes through all this information that just, She's like an encyclopedia, but also she just is able to think about things entirely differently. Not to mention she changed the beef industry in a lot of good ways, um, mainly by getting people to think about how stressing animals out messes up the meat, um, which is a big part of the feedlot problem. Um, it's a huge problem. Yeah that nobody um, really understands. I think that's really what she's known about is the stress of the animal really not yeah. known for, but she's good at that. Like you said, I mean, she can, it, it, and she, she was the one that really brought it to light to where it became more of an awareness by far. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That would, that's who you need to get on this podcast. That would be interesting. I bet you should do it. I feel like she just is good about doing interviews and talks and stuff, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. I, I, I believe so. Uh, I'll just say my friend, uh, he, I had him on the podcast, Charles Mayfield. He has uh, actually faro.live, life, faro.life, F-A-R-R-O-W dot L-I-F-E. There you go, Charles. It, what it is, he's made skincare products out of uh, pig lard. And so um, he's having really good success with that, but he's networking because he's in the industry. He's, you know, he's getting more and more decentralized. He's definitely regen, but we were talking about, you know, that's what we want to do is maybe we can get her on a podcast with Texas Sun's vision, but I've got to get, you know, a little bit more structured with the podcast and then we can kind of approach those type of people. And uh, you, you brought up a very big point. One thing with the kids with autism, the, the, all the kids that I worked with, they cannot tell a lie. They have to tell the truth. They don't know any other way. You know, that yeah. it's just, it's, they can't do it. And so whenever you find somebody that it has that, you know, that form of autism, you know, you're going to get some valid information. There's a lot of people in Bitcoin that are like that. That yeah. are, you know, the autistic joke that we have going on. Yeah, it's true. It's true, it's true. <laughs> have you have you by any chance ever read that book, Lying by uh, uh, what's his name, Sam Harris? No, I haven't. Um, I, I think it's, it's a short read. I think it's a pretty good book. I uh, there's it makes you think about where you lie in your life, you know. And I like for me, 
one of the places, and he talks a little bit about this, one of the places that I lie, or I, we used to lie, is we told our kids there was Santa Claus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's a, I feel like it's a good example because it's good spirited um, and it's fun. And, and there's a way that it like, in, you know, they're excited and, and we think that that improves their life. Like, I think that it, it's fun and that, and that fun improves their life, right? So I, I stand by that decision, but it is a lie. I, I did lie to them about it, you know, and I think there are some people that just can't bring themselves to lie to their kids about Santa Claus. Though I also, I didn't have, I had no hard feelings about Santa Claus being a lie as a kid. Like some kids were just like devastated by it. Right. Um, but I also think different parents, maybe different parents bring that lie to different levels. I don't know. How'd you feel about, did you, were you a believer of Santa Claus? And, and well, do you remember? Actually, yeah. In the beginning. Yeah. That's a funny story. I, we were one hell. Yeah, man. Santa Claus was this, he was it. And um, so was Rudolph and all that one time. I guess I was pretty young. I saw freaking Cessna, you know, I saw the blinking light and it was Christmas Eve and we were <laughs> at my aunt's house and I, I about had an anxiety attack because I needed to be home in bed, man. Freaking Rudolph's on his way. <laughs> so that's kind of a family story because it was a production. I had to get my ass in bed. But, you know, I my family lived in a lot of truths. We all have our lies within the family structure. I had no problem accepting that Santa, Fa- Santa Claus you know, wasn't real. And, you know, one thing I did with my son is that you, I always, we always, it was a joke. Hell yeah. He, he, he loves Santa Claus, but I'd look over at him. I said, you know, this is bullshit. Don't you? And he's like, yeah. And I started doing that with at a young age and man, I'm glad I did. I mean, we go along with it cause it's fun. You know, it's a pageantry. It's something that we do. It's a ritual. And there's so many things that you can look at as far as where Santa Claus comes from. And so, but we always have fun with, with it, it in in it, you're right those type of lies do carry over there's a rationalization and a justification that happens in our psychology and the reason i say those words my father was a counselor for 35 years so i've heard some stuff and i've heard a lot of case studies but we do we rationalize and justify a lot of different types of lies into something that becomes a narrative becomes a emotional behavior and a you know maybe you know something that it it, it doesn't bode well as we get older in life yeah yeah i I don't know would you do it differently though no or or do you wish it had been done differently to yeah no because it it was also it's also like a tradition and Mm -hmm. it's exciting and baking cookies and now that my kids are older we got younger nieces and nephews and my kids like they're like on, they're like part of the lie now. <laughs> like they're all into like, let's bake cookies and we're going to put out a candy. And then the younger kids go to bed and they eat all the cookies, you know, like sure. they write a thank you note from Santa. And they become part of the roost. And, and that's also part of the family tradition that everybody looks forward to, you know, like you just, you get out there and. I don't know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't change a thing either. I, I know, enjoy it. I think it's. Cool. I'm a very. I, I can be pretty pragmatic, or I can take somebody being pragmatic. I try to do. I do it with a lot of sarcasm that gets me in trouble sometimes. But, you know, just an example. You know, Santa Claus and the traditions of the the American family, whatever you want to call it. You know, that has spirit to it. It's something that leads to joy. It, it balances out in a way that it can be collective and 
people can agree to it. You know, all of our traditions in our society, our social engineering that is being attempted and having a lot of success right now, still spirit out of us. It replaces a certain type of spirit that you as a person believes that it is the reality. It is something that you have felt within your heart and your mind. So hell yeah, I'm going to redo it again. And I'm going to do it over and over and over again. I mean, even with my son, I mean, one year I remember I got a, I've got him a bike and I didn't want to put it under the tree or anything like that. So we had a big, big uh, sycamore tree. And so I, put that bike up in that tree and I put a parachute on it. And I said that Santa didn't, he forgot and he had to do a U-turn and he dropped the bike out and then landed in the tree. Now that's something that a kid freaking enjoys, right? And he remembers that because he got to, he got to climb the tree. Then he cut his bike down and, you know, and there's, there's, there's experience around it. So, you know, we do what we do. We do, we, we live heritage. We live in tradition. We try to create legacies with those. So I, I have an interesting kind of like weird a thought process that I, I went through when I was 18 um, I went to, I got to go to Spain for Semana Santa, which is Holy Week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they have all these kind of like crazy, incredible traditions. I was like, if anyone was planning a trip to see a thing in the world during a certain time of year, I, that would be at probably the top of the list for me. It was insane to see. Um, but as a young kid, I felt it, it just made me seeing all these crazy old traditions and that generations of families held up. It made me feel like I did not have traditions. Right. Um, and then from there I went to Italy and I worked in Italy in restaurants for a while and, and they also had a bunch of traditions and I felt like, you know, again, I had no traditions. And I think that, uh, obviously we did have traditions like this tradition that I'm talking about, but, but the reason I'm telling the story is because, it's so easy to your tradition is your normal. Right. And then it's so hard to judge your normal from within the the boundaries of that normal. Um, And stepping outside of my normal, let me see other people's traditions in a unique way. But it, it took me a long time to come back and really appreciate the traditions that were my family, which were like Thanksgiving, like overeating on Thanksgiving and like watching football and farting, you know, like, <laughs> and the, the Christmas cookies and Santa traditions and like making lists and like making get Christmas lists and emailing Santa or mailing Santa a letter, emailing, mailing Santa a letter, all that stuff. Um, I now really value. Right. But in the moment you don't see it. And then, like you, like looking back and we're talking about a lie, um, obviously lie, the word lie has a negative connotation. Um, but we were, we were being fed that reality by our parents. Right. And, and it wasn't our choice. And by them lying to us, they were taking away that choice from us. And I don't know that kids need that choice. Um, but I would kind of draw that, like I would draw like a thought comparison to Bitcoin where, you know, something like inflation is our reality in America and it changes slowly and it affects us 
um, in ways that we don't think about similar to like that those traditions affect us in ways that we don't always recognize until we can step out of it. And then having Bitcoin lets you kind of step out of for a moment, the tradition of inflation in your life. And it makes you think, Oh, we are fucking being lied to this whole time. <laughs> like it's messing up people's lives and it's not fair the way it affects different people differently. Um, and that does make me question whether or not I would tell Santa Claus lies to my kids again or not. Um, now, would I do it differently? Like the real answer is no, I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> um, but it just makes me think about it. Just, I just wanted to draw a comparison to the, the tradition and maybe a lie that comes with the tradition or the Santa tradition anyways. I think it for me, I've looked at that. I've my, my father, um, he's 80 years old now and I'm having some good conversations with him reflecting and the worldview changes whenever you're into Bitcoin. Um, I yeah. think this, you know, it is, it, this is, is something that people, you don't bring too much to the discussion. You respect, you know, what they understand is perception and their, their expectations of things to come and the perceptions of now. And so you, it is a balance, I think, within the individual, but then within the individual that you're speaking with, you know, it is something that you have to be very aware of. Uh, as far as this young generation that's coming up, there's some very, very great ed based kids that are getting some fantastic education about decentralized thinking that's going to be extremely powerful. And I think that, you know, the more that they understand the truth of, you know, what their parents have gone through, even engineered, partook in, uh, still taking part in, you know, they're going to be able to disseminate, you know, Santa Claus as being something that is a tradition based on, you know, uh, fable, whatever it is. But I guarantee you they're going to be able to look at the world in a hell of a lot more intelligent way than we ever were given the chance. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But I like that. I, I like that association that you bring up. Santa and Bitcoin. The great <laughs> lie. <and> inflation. <laughs> right. Who's going to write on that next? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um so what is your year looking like? Tell me something that you, you look forward to that uh, we can we can kind of start framing because we're going to crowdsource a, a beefsteak with the beef initiative. Yeah, well, so it, things are a little bit up in the air right now. I got to nail down the logistics, but there's going to be a beefsteak in Miami on April 5th. Um, <laughs> the details are TBD, but April 5th, um, I'm really looking forward to that. I love, I'm not a huge conference person, but I just love the evenings of uh, drinks and hanging out with Bitcoin. I just love hanging out with Bitcoiners. I, that's that's like the, the tie that binds for me. I, I think mm -hmm. that that, you know, and part of the reason I do beefsteaks is to create a space for Bitcoiners to come together. So I think that's important and it's what I love the most. Um, Beyond that, I don't know, man. I don't, my year's kind of, it's been crazy the past couple of weeks. It's going to be a little bit of a 
fast build up to Miami because that's right around the corner. And then after that, I've got a little bit of runway. Um, we should talk about if we're going to do a beefsteak, if, if, when is a good time to do it in Tennessee? Like, do we do it in the fall? Um, I mean, I yeah, imagine the, it's hot there. It does. I mean, the falls are fantastic. I think Tennessee would definitely be in the fall for sure. Yeah. Um, I have something that I'm going to be talking about tomorrow on uh, with Jason Rick and Rick Ranch Farms. Um, he's out in Crawford, Colorado, and that's out in the Black uh, River Valley uh, Basin there. I mean, that's a really cool part of Colorado. We're going to be out there in July, and oh, yeah. it's going to be mean, like, like a, a one-day conference, and it's going to be at his ranch. And so that the conference, well, the, the educational part, you know, the speaking, you know, everything that happens at conferences is going to be on a Saturday, but I could talk to him and see if we could do a beefsteak out there, like on uh, that Friday before the conference. And if you want to come, you know, to the conference, you can attend the beefsteak or not. And I don't know, that's, I can, we can start that conversation. What do you think about Colorado in July? Oh, I, I mean, I love Colorado in the summer. I think it's like, it's probably one of the more underrated summer trips you can take. Yeah. Like, it's so beautiful out there. It never gets too hot. It's nice and chilly at night. You can build a fire and mm-hmm. that's a great place. Well, what's um, cool about this conference is a lot of, you know, people are going to be able to camp if they want. There's going to be some, you know, logistics. Oh, great. There's going to be stuff going on. That's going to be different than the other conferences it'll be a lot more people really want to be there type this part of Colorado, you know, it's, it's in the center of Colorado. Um, so you, you really have to make plans for this. You have to be very intentional about it. You're going to learn a lot. This, this might be, we're, I don't know. We're onto something here. I'm going to talk to Jason tomorrow. What's the, what's the travel like there? Is it like a fly into Denver and drive there sort of thing? Is it, where is you, it in relation to, Man, how I always got there. You, you come up the un, the underside of Colorado. <clears throat> you, you there's a lot of back roads if you're coming from the south, like from Texas. If you're driving, uh, you go. You know, you can go all the way out towards Pagosa Springs. You know, out that part of Durango and all that, and you can kind of cut up. Um, if you're coming from like Denver, you go out to you take a you go basically all the way out to Glenwood Springs. You go over Aspen that way, that oh, range, yeah, right. and then you drop down from Aspen into that towards Gunnison, and mm-hmm. it is. I mean, it's a fantastic drive. You go through Glenwood Springs. It's a beautiful little town. There's a lot to see through there. Uh, if you were going to fly – Go How far is it from Glenwood Springs? I know Glenwood Springs. Oh, do you? I'd say it's about yeah. two and a half hours from Glenwood. Right, oh, at awesome. about two and a half, three hours. It's not bad from Glenwood. That's your nice. turn off off the interstate there, and um, so it's a fun drive just getting there, and that's why I'm saying it's pretty intentional. And but you, you know, people, if you're if you got a jet, you can fly into Aspen, and you'll be good. Yeah, yeah, but right. beyond that, that's, that's right. going to be the closest airport, I think, as far as my knowledge. Yeah. But uh, it, you got Hotchkiss out there. You got a little town called Peonia that's really cool. You got a Smith Fork Ranch out there that's pretty close to Crawford. There's some stuff out there that uh, if you've never been to Colorado, if you've never been that part of Colorado, you will not be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, it is pretty out there. I've been weirdly enough. I've been to Peonia. <laughs> I oh, know really? Peonia. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a funky little well, town. Um, it is, it in, is a funky little, like, it's like a coal mining town or something, right? Yeah, that's all coal mining area of Colorado through there. That's what Jason was a coal miner for. I, I can't, he told me, I think maybe 16 years. And he's a first generational rancher, you know, and he's seven to eight years into his ranching. So he's yeah. got a hell of a story. And he, he you know, he, that's going to be a fun conference. People are going to leave that conference very smart and, you know, they're going to have a good direction. What is the conference exactly? What's it going to be about? What we're doing with Jason's conference is going to be education. It's like people wanting to homestead, understanding soil, understanding regenerative farming and ranching, how he got started. He started with 400 acres and, you know, he thought that was going to be enough. Well, he, that wasn't enough. He figured that out and he needed to scale what he started to do in that part of the Colorado. A lot of people don't live there year round. So he started going up to people. Maybe they were widows. Maybe they were from the Northeast that come twice a year. And he said, Hey, I want to improve your land. I want to help, you know, you know, with your brush, your trees, uh, even your fencing, you need some new fencing. I want to run cattle on your land. And he started doing that. Now he's, he's stewarding over 4,000 acres of land now. Wow, that's and, cool. and that's a way to do it, a model to do it. Everybody keeps on saying, I can't afford a ranch. There's ways to do this regenerative farming and ranching. And that's what we're going to bring. We're going to bring that story to the conference, how to, you know, get started, what to really look at, what it really entails. It'll be a working ranch. We'll go out there and he'll, show, you know, this is how I have to change fences. This is how I have to water. This is how we feed. This is, you know, everything. And so it'll be full on education education. And I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to just have that general knowledge. Where's my step in here into this lifestyle? And, you know, in what I'm, am I even being smart about this? What can I leverage from him? The network that can yeah. be built. And he, you know, Jason talks to a lot of politicians in Colorado. He's, he's, he's very impressive. So it, it, it'll be that type of conference and just enjoying Bitcoining. And then, of course, we're going to have Bitcoin uh, speakers as well. Everything that we do with Bitcoin, we're starting with the ranchers from ground up education. And we're trying to provide the ranchers a kind of a concierge service. It's like you listen to you know, this. This is how you get started. This is the education. No financial advice, but we want to take them from ground zero all the way into a long term investment understanding. So, and that's what we're putting together as far as the first conference, by the time we get to Colorado, we'll be, um, we'll be pretty, um, kind of, you know, in a good flow. Um, that sounds amazing. You know, I, I have a question for you that, that occurred to me while you were saying that, which is someone asked me what makes, what, qual what qualifies regenerative farming as regenerative and I did not have a concise answer for that beyond something like healing the land, which mm -hmm. I can't really quantify. I can't really quantify very well. Like, how do you quantify regenerativeness? Sure. <laughs> Is that the well, it, it brings up a story here in the where I am on the Yano Estacado in Texas. <clears throat> there's an Indian story, and you know they. Back during the Great Depression in the Dust Bowl, you know, there was a problem and they had some Indian people that consulted about the land, about the grasslands. And this one, he was he was pretty high in the uh, 
in in his community and they said what is wrong with the grass what is wrong with the soil and they said upside down well if you if you understand if you look at any pictures of how a root system should be to uh basically save the soil and to save mm-hmm. the land the the roots are very long and the grass is short and so you look at how we grow crops now you look at a corn stalk corn stalks five feet tall six feet tall um the root system is less than six inches it's upside down and so whenever you talk regenerative the end goal has to be that root system in which helps you know build the minerals everything that you need to have a good soil system that actually works with the environment as far as the cows being able to be those land tools to help that root system grow again to interact and rebuild the soil um i am not an expert man there are so many people out there that are so much smarter than me but the best thing that you can really understand about regenerative farming because a good a good cattle guy really is a good grass farmer because what he's doing and he's moving those herds around in sections that he is he's taking that grass down to where, to where it's still nutritious and it, you know, they're not getting into the root system, moving them off to another pasture and having that type of cycles and people do it with all kinds of different livestock. You can do it with the land, lead with the chickens, then lead with the lambs or the hog. You know, there's ways you can incorporate different livestock into that regenerative farm, but your end goal is really just to let the soil be the soil, quit damaging the soil by tilling it up, turning it, and you know, making it do something over and over again, it needs to have that chance to really be soil and grass again. You know that combination. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And that's a good I introduction. Like, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just was going to say I feel like that's something that gets lost in the meat is hard on the land. Oh, that's, that's a, that's a total psyop, man. That's, that's from the chemical companies. I mean, you look how we used to do, okay. The great plains, the grasslands was here a thousand years and it was, you know, it was built and it was maintained by the bison, you know, everything that's going on now with meat and cows is 100 is a collaboration and it is, it is a psyop against basically people understanding about how chemicals have destroyed our soil. We don't have yeah. to get into name calling, all that kind of crap, but the soil is dead and they know it. And so that's why they're going after the cow because they're saying that the cow's bad for the environment. The cow is a carbon hazard. They're trying to classify cow as a global carbon hazard so that you will be a bad consumer if you consume that cow that's the overall reaching goal of what they're trying to do they're basically what they're trying to do is take animal protein out of our diets in a way that they've been doing for years and they're trying to replace it with the gmo chemical laden soy proteins and pea proteins and everything else they can make a lot more money off of that they can manipulate more and then they can engineer in ways to make you obese overweight diabetic and unhealthy so you're part of the system that is the medical pharmaceutical agricultural complex (laughs) that's another total podcast but i had to say that because i hate the freaking lies that they're saying and they're they're it's a coordinated attack and that's why we're you know that's one of the reasons my whole thing i wrote a thing called harvest of a deception and that's what it's about 
and we have to save our cattle. We have to save our ranchers, our grass farmers. We have to save our soil. This is the way to do it. If they want to talk about climate change, they're the reason for it. Not us, not the regenerative side of this, you know, the population. And the more truth is coming out in the awareness, like even having a beefsteak, that is showing the power of the cow. The cow has many uses and many powers. So, I was going to say, you need to, you need to save the chefs too, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. You really do. That's a good point. <laughs> well, you it need is. The, cows the chefs. <laughs> well, I, you know, there's a couple of chefs I know, and you know, the one thing that they pride themselves is understanding the cuts of the cow. And you know, that's what I'm brought, I'm bringing. I think I released an article yesterday. It's like how, how to buy half a cow and it had a chart of beef cuts. And, yeah. you know, that's what we have to get people to understand. It's like, do not go eat at a steakhouse or demand that the, the, you know, the chefs, you speak to the chef, you know, is he a beef chef? Does he know the cuts of the cow? Start asking the, the, these restaurants the right questions and saying, this is what the consumer wants to know. You're the one saying you're a badass steakhouse will prove it. And yeah. we have to do that as big corners. Nobody else is going to do that. That's that awareness that we're, you know, we're cre- creating. You know, there's on, uh, on the, I think it's the university of Nebraska. They did this thing where they have a, they did a really detailed MRI of a cow carcass and you can go on to their website and kind of like slide through the cow and like rotate it around and see all the different cuts and where they come from mm-hmm. and the bones. And it is very cool to mess around with. Um, I just, wish that when you're doing that and looking at the cow that you could link to recipes from it or something like that right because it's like you just there's so much there's so many cuts of the cow and and you just you need to know how to make it delicious um yes because they all have different pros and cons and some some steaks are good medium rare and some steaks are okay medium and some steaks are terrible if they get anything beyond rare um but then other things you can't really cook as a steak. You need to make it, you need to cook it for a really long time. Um, I don't know. So that's a different, that's a different road to go down. Well, you um, know what? I think you just, uh, you, you just planted a seed for a new business model for somebody, somebody that wants to accomplish that. Let's get going because you're right. I mean, I've, I've had numerous discussions with ranchers saying we need to get the recipes out there. We need to have them understand that this type of cut can be this type of, you know, steak, how to cook it, how to, you know, prepare it and everything that's coming. And the more I hear it is more that I need to do something on that or somebody it's, this is free carpet. You know, we're in a free market system right now. So let's, let's get busy Bitcoiners. Let's see who can do this. You know, that's a good idea. I have kind of a funny story actually when, uh, (laughs) There's this the borough market in London, and they there's a there's a or there was anyways um, an amazing cattle farmer from Ireland. It was incredibly expensive, and uh, I was standing there, and this guy came up and he bought a, a huge two bone steak that it probably cost him two hundred pounds or something like that, <laughs> and he asked the farmer, the Irish farmer, how he should cook it, and the farmer was like you need to throw it in a pot with some water and some potatoes and boil it for an hour <laughs> i was like dude 
Do not boil your T-bone for an hour. <laughs> you cannot do that. I was like, wow. you can't tell people that. But I mean, that was a good example of like, that's how that guy never buys a T-bone steak again, right? And, exactly. and a lot of farmers... And a lot of farmers are, though I could be wrong, maybe he would like it, but that is not what I would do with a T-bone steak. Um, and I, I, a lot of farmers, like, they just don't, you know, they're standing at the farmer's market and they want to sell top round, but they don't know how to tell a person to cook with it, right? So mm -hmm. it's like, and then when they give the wrong information, they never, but no one ever buys top round again it's so important to just be able to say, I don't know. Right. Like I would so much rather have someone say, I don't know the answer to that question mm -hmm. than yeah. give me the wrong <laughs> answer. And I trust you. Cause then, cause, cause who would know you're like, if this guy's selling top round, he obviously knows how to cook it, but they, they just have no idea. You're right. I mean, that, that's a good point. They, they don't have time or it's just not part of it. And we, we build those associations saying, Oh, of course he's going to know top round. And no, he probably never eats it. Maybe he, he's just going to tell you because he's, you know, providing maybe that's a, yeah. yeah, I think you're correct on that. One thing that maybe you and I need to do is uh, talk a little bit more and bring, I've got uh, somebody gourmet caveman. He he's moving from New York to Tennessee, actually just made me think of that he's he's starting to write some stuff on how to prepare um beef and he's doing fire and beef and that's really what he he really specializes in you know as Is far as how york to do city? it yeah he, he's or, leaving new york city i believe yes i wonder if i've met him i have no idea who that is he's on twitter it's at gourmet caveman look him up i believe he's I relocating he, I saw him on uh, uh, Telegram the other day. I think he said he was relocating, so he had a plan going on. So uh, we'll bring him into the discussion, you know, whatever we yeah, do. To yeah, start. Sure. What, what I need to do is, you know, write something in the in the newsletter and, you know, put it out on through the beef initiative and get people talking about it and see where it runs. Because you're right. I mean, yeah. It, it people right now they're buying you know boxes from the beef initiative and they're buying their own beef wherever they're you know be able to source it people are wanting to know how to prepare it so i think yeah. it's, we had to we we got beef in our damn name we better do something right <laughs> yeah as far as how I to mean, prepare it some, totally yeah just i mean also like if you're gonna throw a thing of like i keep i keep using top round as, as an example because i feel like it's something that's like a cheap delicious thing that no one ever cooks because they have no mm -hmm. idea what to do with it right I feel like you just you bring, if you're gonna throw top round in a box just throw a top round recipe in there you know like just make it easy but but yeah everybody has yeah it's a tough it's a tough gambit getting people to cook and giving them recipes everybody wants has a different threshold for the amount of effort they're going to put into something um but also how much pressure how much effort you put into something is not always indicative of, of how delicious delicious it becomes right so you just need a, a bunch of low effort high delicious recipes <laughs> Well, and what better than, you know, beef? I mean, there's, there's so it's, it is, it's easy. I don't even think about it. It just every day is like, oh, it's a grill. Oh, it's cast iron. And, you know, how you use those two apparatuses of heating is you can come up with a lot of stuff pretty easy. It's, it is. And yeah. one thing is people have to admit that they don't know how to cook. 
food is just too convenient nobody's taught cook anymore people you know people especially during you know covid people had food delivered to their doors and so yeah i mean i yeah go ahead but it's also like it's okay to not know how to cook, right? I, I guess exactly. that's the thing about it's not it. A ju- like, I mean, yeah, it's not a big deal, but it's something fun to learn. Yeah. And it's like, uh, like I think about it with like skiing, like I forever wished that I knew how to ski and like, really you have to follow your pride and just show up and be willing to fall down because you're going to mess. Like when you start cooking, you're going to mess it up. Like there's things are going to go wrong. And that's just part of the process. Um, you just got to like swallow it and, and move on, like swallow it figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I like that. And that's the fun part of uh, cooking. Once you once you do find out a few little techniques, you uh, you, you become to where you don't you're not going to not not, I don't want to say trust, but you're not really going to desire somebody else preparing your food. I don't, you know, unless it's somebody, you know, my family doing it for me, you know, that's it. I'm not, and that's fine. I'm the restaurant now. I like becoming the restaurant, you know, more so than I used to be. And, you know, that's taken time to get there. But once you start sourcing your protein in the right way, once you start having the technique of prepare, you know, what do you know? We have intentional living that's going back a little bit over our shoulder, this tradition and heritage. You can find out all kinds of great history with food preparation, just everything that you've brought up and how you got started with beefsteak. So why would you not want to live like this? I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you want this for everyone. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I love doing beefsteaks and I consider myself fortunate to have found a way to do what I love. Um, so, and I, I wouldn't change anything about that. I, I, and I hope, I hope that for everyone, whether or not it's eating beef or whatever it is, figure it out what it is that you love and, and try to build your life around doing it. Yeah. That's what I, it's what I tell everybody is that this is not a carnivore vegan thing really for the beef finish. This is about finding real food again and understanding what it is as far as nutrition and how to prepare it. And it's going to make your life different. uh, Total side question just popped into my head when you said real food. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that Buffalo wild wings fries their wings in tallow? Have you ever heard that? Somebody said that about a month ago, I believe, on Twitter. I saw that. I'm. We'll, we're going to have to find out. I I, I wanna, saw that though. I want. I want. Uh, I'm looking for verification, and I don't know how to get. I don't know how to verify it. I mean, I haven't even tried. Started to try because it just it's something that came across my radar in the last 48 hours. But it's. I was curious if you knew anything about it. Well, everybody out there, do the, do your research like a Bitcoiner and let us know the truth on that. You yeah, know, yeah. I'll have I'll have a couple of people look at it too. I want to find out now. <laughs> yeah, because that's yeah, a good I'm, that's I'm, a good I'm, case study to get back to freaking tallow instead of rapeseed canola oil that's killing people. So not yeah. killing people. I, I take that back. That is making them um, very confused about food. Yeah, yeah, and and like you said, it's. Just because we can eat it doesn't make it a real food, right? Like it's like a no. It's pretty process. It's a. I don't want to call it an evil. 
but it's not ideal. Well, it's not, um, you know, just for people I have, I have to tell everybody this, that rapeseed is what is canola, which is margarine and every other dang, whatever they put a name on it. But rapeseed was outlawed by the FDA in 1956 for any form of human consumption. <laughs> well, they just yeah. modified that seed just a little bit so it wouldn't kill you. And uh, they learned how to industrialize it. And I, I love it in my lawnmowers. It does fantastic. Chainsaw oil is excellent for consumption. Probably want to stay away from seed oils. And that's a good start to look at, you know, why beef is so important because how you can prepare it in the right ways and what it does for you from a nutritional animal protein standpoint. And especially if you're buying from your rancher and you're understanding that beef steak should be in your life every day yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, hey, we've uh, we've gone collectively probably pretty long here. Um, this conversation has been just as good, or maybe even better than the one we had. We had we had a little bit more time, a little more mind space, I guess, today. But um, let's throw it out there that you know we're going to try to work together to do a beefsteak. Uh, yeah, for this sure. Time. Uh, let's get some chefs, you know, coming back you or come to the beef initiative with ideas on recipes and in beef. And so we can do talk about preparation and in recipes and intentional cooking in your in your own home. Uh, I think I think we'll start getting a lot of crowdsourcing information. There is a section on the beef initiative. You need to go to it, Josh. Check it out. It's it's a it's at beefinitiative.com, but it's under the mine your protein section. Okay. And people can submit their uh, recipes, their how they mine their protein, how they do their cookouts. Oh, all of it so we need to get you into the mine your protein section we just opened it up and i'd love to have you know something about the just anything you want to write and we'll put it in there it can be an article or it could just be a short little segment it's whatever you choose I'm terrible with words, Texas. I'm terrible with words. <laughs> well, we can. A recipe or two in there. Well, what we can do is there's got to be some type of good information about, you know, what you do or whatever you, your website and just kind of write about the website. You know, you do have your website that you can. Cool. We'll uh, we'll put that in your mind, your protein section. I'll have my team get that and we'll uh, we'll submit that in the mind your protein section, get that going. And then once, you know, once it's submitted into the beef initiative website, then we can all start tweeting out it and people share the tweets and share the newsletter. So. Cool. And Texas, thank you for having me on. It's been like a, a pleasure chatting with you. I look forward to doing it in person over beers yeah, or whatever. Yeah, man. It, you, I tried to meet you for a while, but we both got busy in different directions, man. It, it's a, it's an honor to meet you. And everybody always just has extreme high praise for the people that I've talked to that have been down, you know, and done a beefsteak like the one in Austin. So they want you back. That's something you might want to look at. Um, though they're doing strong down there in Austin. But it's yeah, been a pleasure. Are. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a fun year. And I think we'll be able to do a lot together. So yeah. thanks a bunch. Have a good day and we will talk thank to you, you soon. All you people out there, thank you for listening. Thank you for being patient with us today. And from last week, <laughs> you didn't realize uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Here at the Beef Initiative, we encourage all you ranchers out there to tell us who and where you are so we can let everybody know they're looking for you. This time I'm shouting out KNC Cattle out of Austin, Texas. 
kncattle.com. Cole, he's a fourth-generational Texas rancher. He knows what he's doing.